This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's Friday. Thank you. It's the day before Saturday. I was kind of confused by that. And then you get to go home. Wednesday. Tonight, you just start your weekend. What if I already started my weekend? Well, then you're you're started too early. Okay. Shame, shame, shame. Oh, hold off a little bit longer. Everybody knows your name. It'll be a great weekend. It should be. It's a and then Sunday the day of rest. When you rest, great. Just letting you know, <laughs> letting everyone at home know, Does Daddy's it, gonna rest on Sunday. <laughs> so don't call you. Don't. Yeah, everybody, leave me alone. No contacting. For heaven's sakes, we've got a great show for you today. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about an un- an uninformed electorate. More and more people are, um, you know, having opportunities to hear more and more about politics, and yet they're so uninformed. Now, to clarify, yeah. this isn't calling people uninformed because they don't vote the way that you do. That's to, Yeah, that's that's just stupid. There is a lot of people who feel that because people vote differently, yeah. they are uninformed. That's you not what we're talking are about. clueless. This is more about just how do you educate people about it's more politics if it and about... If it, if it isn't a Kardashian, people don't know what's going on, but they still have a vote. Well, that's why Kanye that's, needs to whoa. run. If, see, if Kanye would run, then yeah. we would inform the public. He would unite the people. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that wouldn't work. A great um, book coming up. It's called Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. It, it matters because if they're not showing up to vote or if they're showing up uninformed – and only know what they know because they have watched TV. Mm. Or that is rough. That that might just it might just handicap you a little bit. I mean, it, it might even. I mean, you could just n- nominate anybody to be president. It's weird. So today we will be speaking with Ar- Arthur Lupia, who is a professor um, at the of political science at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the book. And is going to walk us through how we could improve our education in the in uh, the political arena, and um, it's it's a fascinating discussion, especially with everything that's going on now. You may not have heard, but Donald Trump, uh, you know, he is the now presumptive nominee of the GOP party, I came in like a and he just keeps tearing it up in different ways. This is this is why. To try to predict what this guy's going to do next, I don't know how you do that. Because it seems like he needs to unify the party, right? It seems like he it's needs... Keep, it's what I keep hearing. He needs Paul Ryan, it seems like, on his side. Because Paul is the chair of the convention. So, you know, he, he, wants, he wants Paul Ryan to endorse him, and yet... Paul Ryan's not quite there yet. Uh, I'm just not ready to do that at this point. I'm not there right now. And I hope to, though, and I want to. But I think what is required is that we unify this party. And I think the bulk of the burden on unifying the party um, will have to come from our presumptive nominee. Yeah. So what, So he's saying 
not so subtly even, that if we're going to unify the party, it's going to have to come from Donald Trump. Yes. But he's also saying, I'm not quite ready to endorse Trump yet at this point, he said. It doesn't mean he won't endorse Trump, but at this point, he's not ready to do it, which Trump should just say, hey, I understand, brother, from another mother. I understand. I'm here. I will unite the people. But he didn't quite say that. No, he did not. He, <laughs> he, he, he kind of went another direction with it. Like, well, I don't even need that. I don't, whatever. Well, he said he's not ready to endorse anything that Paul Ryan's ready to do either. Right. So he kind of just threw it back in his face and said, fine, we'll deal yeah. with it. We'll talk about well, it. Well, and on uh, one of the stations today, I think it was from late last night, they said, you know, do you – does Paul Ryan, if he doesn't support the nominee, should you support him as Speaker of the House? And he's like, no. Yeah. Not, it seems like not a great way to unite. Call me, call me old-fashioned. Not not a great way to unite. It, it's almost a discussion that should have happened earlier. Like right now is not yeah. the time to talk about yeah. this. They should be all ready to go and focused. And it just yeah. there's still this fracture. There should just be love right now, or at least no tension. He's also Donald's also str- having some trouble because a lot of the GOP kind of insiders don't. They're not going to the. They're not going to the convention. Mitt Romney said he won't be there. The Bushes won't be there. All three of them. Jeb said he wasn't going to oh, be yeah, there. Oh, yeah, Jeb too. Okay, I was like, oh, Everyone forgets Jeb. Know, they they remember the presidents and, oh, yeah, yeah, Jeb's not it's, going And either. it's sad because it should be the other brother that nobody remembers, the one that hasn't run for anything yet. But it's Jeb. They yeah. forget. Um, they, he won't be there. Uh, McCain won't be there. McCain Mc- even said he's fighting for his life. Yeah, he's concerned because his, uh, his constituents, there's a large Hispanic voting body in Arizona and and with Trump's message doesn't really attract them to the Republican side and so he's like that'll hurt me and my try yeah. to you know re-election campaign which so he's kind of worried about that which i mean i understand he's worried about that i don't know exactly why because donald trump eats taco bowls Ugh. that uh, i don't know if you heard that uh, wonderful bit of donald trump celebrating cinco de mayo yesterday but he um he, he talked about how he, he loves himself a good ta- taco bowl. He sat from Trump Towers. There was a picture, mm-hmm. taco bowl. Said he got it from the the Trump Grill or whatever yeah. there in the the hotel where he works. <laughs> and um, this was the response to his Twitter. This woman put this oh. out. There were uh, thirty one thousand likes on this tweet. It says from An- a woman named Andrea Musiano, I believe. This is too bad a taco bowl isn't Mexican. The Trump Tower Grill isn't either. You're not eating taco bowls from New York because you're in West Virginia right now. Cinco de Mayo isn't a Hispanic holiday. It's a Mexican holiday, and you are the same color as the taco bowl shell. But I digress. Wow. (laughs) Wow. She got him on so many fronts. Yes. So anyway, is he going to really be able to do it? That's the question. Is he going to be able to unite the party? It's, uh, It's not a great start for that. But again, he's the Don. That's why I I wouldn't predict anything. Well, except really more chaos and interesting things happening. But is that really the reason why so many people have become disinterested? You can't trust what a lot of these people are saying anyway. And now he's taking on Hillary. In fact, uh, let's just give you a taste of uh, what what – 
Trump thinks of Hillary. West Virginia Coal Association just endorsed me. Let's put it this way. It was between me and Hillary. And, and we, we really affectionately call her Crooked Hillary, right? Crooked Hillary. There you go. So is that what he's going to call her? Crooked Hillary? I don't know. He, he seems to be market testing yeah. his nickname this time. What was the other one we figured out? Crooked um, Hillary and Sleepy? No. Darn we, it. We, we had it the we other day. forever. Yeah. And we figured <laughs> it out. But um, just lacking energy to s- s- durability. Uh, anyway. Uh, Hillary, though, is also coming out. She's swinging a bit, too. Listen to her first anti-Trump commercial. I am a unifier. We're going to be a unified party. A phony. Donald Trump is the know-nothing candidate. Donald is a bully. This is an individual who mocked a disabled reporter. Ah, I don't remember! The most vulgar person to ever aspire to the presidency. The man who seems to only feel big when he's trying to make other people look small. Don't worry about it, little Margo. Gentlemen, the man is utterly amoral. The sign of deep insecurity and weakness. The bullying, the greed, the showing off. I'm really rich. The misogyny, the absurd third grade theatrics. Count to ten, Donald. Count to ten. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. A narcissist at a level... I don't think this country's ever seen. He would not be the commander-in-chief we need to keep our country safe. This guy is so unfit to be commander-in-chief. His domestic policies would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. I bring people together. (laughs) Everybody loves me. He's got... He needs needs therapy. (laughs) Wow. There you go. Probably the cheapest commercial ever put together. Just grab clips from all the different news stations. And I, brilliant. And really, it's a list of who's who in the GOP. And every one of them anti-Trump. And it took nothing but a primary election. Do you, How many of those voices do you think will turn eventually? Um, because the other man, candidate is Hillary Clinton. Well, at today's rate, zero. <laughs> but... I don't know, man. Who would have thought? I don't know. Well, I found this this morning. The the Never Trump movement has kind of failed in the primary. Yeah. If they want to do anything in the general election, they need a candidate. Yeah. So you, all you need do a, is get a candidate. They'll need a third candidate out there, some third party candidate. It says uh, the anti Donald Trump conservative activists have stepped up in their efforts to find a third party alternative, but they have to file their paperwork in Texas by May 9th. Wow. Which is Monday. Yeah. To get on the ballot with deadlines in other states following soon after. This from the, the Hill website. Possibilities include former New Mexico Governor Jerry Johnson or Gary Johnson, Libertarian Party's 2012 nominee, a uh, Nebraska, what, uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Saucy. He's, he's younger. He's newer. Yeah. But he's been very vocal. And we saucy. We some clips here. I'm very saucy. Also, I'm probably saying that wrong. Also, he's uh, he has called for an alternative to Trump and Clinton in Facebook post on Thursday. Rick Perry has also been mentioned, but here in the scorn of Trump foes on Thursday when he dismissed the idea and endorsed Trump and said, I'd be open to be uh, vice president, if he asked. If you need me to take a job, I'll do it. So you, they, if you want to do it and get on the ballot in Texas, which is an important state, you need to have it on the ballot by Monday. Wow. And that's, that's probably why that's not going to happen. <sighs> then... Let's not forget about Bernard Sanders. Bernard. Bernard just keeps whipping Hillary from one side. 
And now Trump's whipping her on the other side. Well, Hillary's got to want him to just go away. Get. She she has ninety one percent of the delegates she needs I know, to clinch the nomination. Supposedly, the next couple races, Sanders is going to win, which is going to give this. Uh, this but then idea she'll of, just take California, oh, sure. take it, and who cares? It's well, I know, over. But if it's two more weeks of people thinking, "Wow, why does he keep winning? Why is he still here? He's that guy that won't leave after the party." But interestingly. Oh, if you go back and hear what Hillary, <laughs> are you still here? <laughs> What's going on? If you go back to 08 and hear what Hillary Clinton was saying when Barack Obama wanted her to leave, mm-hmm. she's but she she had more votes. Yeah. than Barack. It was a closer race. Um, but she didn't want to go. They just don't want to go. There's a lot of stuff that uh, that uh, can go wrong. In fact, interestingly, the longer Trump is in, probably or the longer Sanders is in, the better for Trump. So. Trump's now starting to support Sanders, right? She Even maybe going to some of the states where they're where they're actually she can't campaigning. focus on him, yeah. And he can you know focus everything on her, so yeah, he can try to clean up some of those numbers that don't look so good right now, and pick off and pick up a few of the Sanders people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he just goes in there and starts liking a few of Sanders' ideas, the disaffected Democrat. That's what I kept hearing referred to yesterday. So this may be, it seems like, the election of the disaffected Republicans and Democrats. Probably just voters in general. Yeah. That mass in the middle that's really can go either way. Yeah. Who can win those people? And a lot of which are younger for Sanders and are obvious television fans for Donald Trump. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting year, isn't it? Anyway, we will be um, bringing on um, Arthur Lupia in just a few moments to talk about Uninformed, which is the name of his book, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. I mean, think about it. Are you really into politics? Voter turnout has been dropping almost every year, uh, every election over the last 14 years or so. It's a big deal. So how about you? Where do you fit in this? Are you informed? Or do you just think you are? Do you just think everyone else is crazy because they don't think like you do? Stick with us. Wonderful guest coming up. Interesting subject. But check yourself. Remember, this is an election that uh, you're still going to have to throw the lever for, right? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy May 6th, by the way. No Homework Day is the name of uh, is today's designation. Um, it's No Homework Day. And the children rejoice. That's right. It is the day where children can tell their teachers and their parents in complete honesty that uh, they will not be doing their homework because there is no homework today. So now go grab a video game. Or just some ice cream. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And kick back. And maybe that is the reason why we have, you know, a lagging interest in politics. I mean, I get why you don't love politics. Some do. And um, our guest, uh, we're getting on the phone, Dr. Lupia, is uh, has a great quote I heard him say. And I don't know if he was quoting someone else, but he... 
He basically believes there's two types of people, those that are ignorant, right, and then those that are delusional and think they know a lot more than they do. And so when it comes to politics, we probably have the same situation going on, right, where some are just flat out ignorant. They don't know what's going on. Really, they don't. They don't. They're not paying attention to it. They just think that this is a really crazy episode from reality television. The hiring of a president. Um, and then there's others who actually, you know, are maybe a little delusional thinking that they know so much. But they, they garner their information and we talk about this a lot on the show. They've gathered their information from resources that totally jive with everything they think, right? They're, they're not gathering just facts and, and neutral data. They tend to gather the data that's already been maybe twisted, maybe turned to the favor of, of uh, their candidate or their persuasion. And so it's, a, it's an interesting thing that we're dealing with. And in the end, though, the, the data tends to be showing that we're struggling to get voters to turn out. A Center for the Study of American Electorate in 2012 did a study, and their study shows that in 2000, 54.2 percent of the population uh, turned out – of the electorate turned out for the vote, 54 um, percent. Then in 2004, it went up to about 60.4 percent. In 2008, 62.3 percent. That was when Barack Obama won, right? And he brought in – so many more of the minority votes and, and really lifted up the turnout. And then in 2012, his second term, voter um, turnout, electorate turnout was 57.5%. Back down to uh, nearly what it was back in 2000, just a little bit better than that. So, and that was um, the whole, you know, Romney run, right, against Obama. So, it's, it's an interesting discussion and uh, our, our next guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, is um, going to be talking to us about this, about what do we do to inform the people about what's going on in the political world. His book is titled Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Anything we can do to increase the competency of voters is is going to be, I think, incredibly important to our democracy. Um, stick with us and and let's learn. Dr. Arthur Lupia, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. This is um, for me, uh, boy, what a what an important topic, and also timing probably couldn't be better. Um, talk to me, Dr. Lupia, about your book, Uninformed. I mean, 57.5% turnout in the 2012 election, is that because the, the voters are just – are they in a malaise? Do they just not care anymore? What do you mean when you talk about uninformed? Well, um, when we think about – you know, it's often easy to tell a story about those uninformed voters who aren't doing the right things, whether they're not turning out for elections or voting for the candidate that you don't like. Right. Um, but – but when we ask people, uh, there's really two types of people in America, and this is my starting point. Uh, there's one group of people who know very little about almost everything and recognize that, and the other group is delusional about how much they know. So let me explain that. Uh, every year, Congress passes between two and 300 laws, and your state legislature or mine passes two or 300 laws, and the city that I live in would pass 100 laws. 
And even though I'm an expert in, you know, political information, I, I couldn't name more than 10 of them in a given year. Right. And so uh, the issue isn't that, you know, there are some people who don't know things and there are some people who know everything. All of us don't know things. But now the opportunity is how do we give people the information they need to make good decisions? And that's what my book's about. That's a great point because it's. I mean, it, it, there's just too much to know, and I guess too, it's we ha- we have to give them the information, and we I guess we have to figure out what people really need to know, don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just what people need to know because you know if you and I go to the voting booth and we have two choices, a chimp with a coin gets that right half the time. <laughs> and so you know what we have to figure out is how to do better than that. But then the other key to it is how to give people the information that they need in a way that they'll actually want to pay attention to and think about and remember. And that's a really tricky part, but it's something that we can do. And it seems like of all times to do it, it's today because people can get more information about stuff they've never even wanted to know or know, know they needed to know just online. The technology's there. Yeah, that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is if, that if, if you're a political geek, this is the best time in history for right. you because you can find so much about everything. The bad news is, if you're not that interested in politics, some of those cat videos are really entertaining, and you can watch them all day instead of learning anything about politics. And so one of the tricks now for people who want to educate people about science or education or matters of faith or whatever it is, is to break through and to try and get, you know, give give information to people in ways that they want to pay attention to, that's relevant to their lives and that they can actually use. Hmm. Is there a correlation, do you think, between... This um, this uh, lack of knowing and turnout. Uh, there's some correlation, but you know this is something people have studied over over a long period of time. There's some people who don't know very much and they don't care and they don't turn out, and that's always been the case. There are some people who actually know quite a bit and they're disaffected, and they just think their vote doesn't make a difference and they stay away. So you know we have we have both types. It, what is true is that when we have a political moment where people think the decision is really relevant to their lives and those of their families and communities, that's when you see turnout spike a bit. Mm. But, as, but as a general matter, um, there's a slight correlation between what we call knowledge and turnout, but it's not uh, determinative. Mm. What do you see? Uh, I mean, I've been dying to ask you this. Um, the, uh, okay, so the name of the book, Uninformed, Why People Do yep. Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. What's going through your head as you watch, let's just say, the last month of the primary process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, at, if we can talk about the last three months. We yeah, started sure. With 17, we started with 17 candidates on the Republican side. And in the Republican Party for about 40 years, there's been a pretty significant division between what you might call establishment Republicans and movement conservatives about the role of government. I mean, they all disagree with the Democrats, but there's a pretty real disagreement. And over the last, let's say, since the, particularly since 2008, when we had the bailout that President Bush uh, had some things to do with, members of what we call the Tea Party or movement conservatives have been increasingly unhappy with the establishment Republicans. So that's been festering for a while. Governor Romney, uh, President Bush 43, Ronald Reagan, they're recent historical figures who have found a way to talk to both groups. But in this, uh, with 17 people, trying to talk to both groups proved to be a pretty bad strategy because to emerge from that mess, uh, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have some strong 
way to distinguish yourself. And Donald Trump did that, right? And so you had um, Governor Bush from Florida, Marco Rubio, trying to talk to both groups. You had Ted Cruz really just trying to talk to movement conservatives. But Donald Trump just tried an entirely different strategy, which was to break from the convention of those two wings of the Republican Party and speak directly to a set of disaffected people, mostly within the Republican Party, about their concerns, about their anxieties, give them very simple sound bites and strong conclusions. And when there are 17 people, if at the beginning you get 25%, which was mm. what Donald Trump got, you win. Yeah, every so time. Be, yeah, so his move early on, was it's not about policy coherence, it's about distinguishing himself from the other 16, and he did that very well. Wow. Yeah. And, and I guess that that really helped in the in the broader race with 17. Do you think that helps when it's one on one? No, I think it's a it's, it's a bit of a problem now. Um, what it did was really help. It helped him get a lot of the moderates out of the way. Uh, you know, I think it's why Governor Bush and some of the other people who are from the, the establishment Republican wing, uh, you know, it's why they they left the race pretty quickly. Yeah. But now when it's it's one on one, it's tougher because. Um, now uh, Donald Trump is more likely to be called on some of the inconsistencies in his policy, some of the ways in which he breaks with the different types of Republican orthodoxy, and there's not 16 other voices competing. Now there's just one. So I think that, and, and you see Trump, I think, now thinking about changing his strategy a bit. So I don't think the primary strategy will get him very far. Hmm. Does does a, a process that we've been through, let's say the last three months, does it improve an informed electorate or does it just confuse them more? Like Donald's been complaining about the ballot is rigged, the ballot process is – or the delegate process is rigged and um, – you know, we're not, and then we hear we're not a we're a republic, we're not a democracy, and then we also have Bernie Sanders on the side that's a socialist Democrat. I mean, it, so yeah. is it is it informing us, or because are people like taking these things and saying, okay, well, when they say he's a socialist, what does that mean, or are we just confusing everybody? Well, both things are happening with respect to the first part of your question, because we had you know the possibility of a contested convention on the Republican side. And, you know, at least the close election on the Democratic side, there's been much more media attention to the roles of the primary process. And what's interesting about this is prior to this year, you know, the typical sell was come out to the primary, your vote matters, and we're going to, you know, uh, bring about a nominee. And so it's really important that you vote. And now what people on both sides have recognized is, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly how it works. Right. And so I think particularly on the Republican side, after, you know, the nomination contest blows over, there will be a significant debate, let's say, early next year about what the rules for 2020 are going to be, because a lot of people ha- have have now seen the, you know, the the, the gold, the Rube Goldberg device that's the Republican primary rules, and they're going to want some changes. Mm, yeah. And, and again, disconnected from the event itself. It, it, I guess this is part of what's interesting is um, – it doesn't seem like we have the information necessarily when we need it. We, we'll get it later or we'll get it way too early, never maybe in the moment. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Arthur Lupia, the author of the book Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, also get into his solutions. Um, how do you inform uh, the electorate and and how do you get people to 
get involved without like forcing it upon them like mom used to do with spinach. Interesting. I mean, it's it's good for you, but you may not like how it tastes. Stick with us. More with Dr. Arthur Lupia. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show, two types of people we were just taught by our, our guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, who is the, the Hal R. Varian Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, and also the author of the book, uh, Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Two types of people, basically, those that, um, you know, that are uninformed that don't really know what's going on. And then those that are, have kind of deluded themselves into believing that they know way more than they actually do. And those two combine to, uh, to create a problem where we, we want an informed electorate, right? And yet 57.5% of uh, people turned out to vote in the 2012 election. Let's get back to Dr. Arthur Lupia, find out uh, what, what, what we can do about this. Dr. Lupia, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. This is, I think it's so important, and it seems so basic, and I think some people are maybe just are drawn to politics. They kind of like the issues, or they like the the debate about it, and maybe others are just not informed. Is that what you find? I mean, they're not informed, but not even caring about it. Yeah, I mean, there are different types. I mean, there are some people who really care about the policies, are are really public regarding, care about their communities, and see a life in public service as a way to, you know, not only help their communities, but to kind of, you know, advance themselves. There are other people who like the sport of it, who like the horse race, you know, who are excited about it in the way that you would be of on, um, you know, spectator sports. But then there are other people, you know, politics is, issues become political when they get close to value conflicts within our society, different ways of looking at things. When we have an an ethical or moral consensus, uh, we don't use politics anymore. We just say this is the right thing to do, and we we go away from that. So when we get to these issues of like ethical or moral moral conflicts, some people really don't like to think about it. It makes them uncomfortable, and so they stay away from politics that way. And then there are other people who don't think about any of it that deeply. It's just it's just more fun to do other things, and so they yeah. they're out entirely. Like Candy Crush, exactly. And what could, and in cat videos. That's such a good comment you made um, because that I guess that's it. We have all of this other information, but then um, our politicians will give us data. They'll, they'll throw out all of these facts, uh, I guess, in a desire to either – I guess to inform us or is it to just create more smoke? You know, uh, statistics are used for different reasons. Um, sometimes people want to use statistics – to say, look, uh, life is improving, or we have a real threat, and here's a way to think about it. And if you love statistics, that type of information can, can be really helpful. It can help you develop a strategy to try and improve quality of life. Uh, in other cases, uh, some people have trouble hearing statistics. You know, we, there's this saying, it's a little bit unfortunate, that, you know, a thousand suffering children is a statistic, one suffering child is a tragedy. Mm. Right? When we see a story of a child that's in danger, we want to do something. 
But sometimes when we hear that a thousand people, a child, children are suffering, well, that just becomes a number. And so uh, statistics are problematic in that way. And then, of course, people use statistics to try and obscure things. So you know, all of those things happen in government. At their best, they can really inform us about what we need to do. And isn't that the big point of your book? That Because you're drawing on more than just political science theory. You're drawing on psychology and attention span and political psychology. Uh, we we may need to really relook at how we are trying to get our uh, our electorate's attention, right? And how we educate them. Talk to us about some of your solutions that you propose in your book, Uninformed. Sure. So, well, you you hit some of it right before the commercial break. You know, a lot of people who are involved in education, like myself, it's easy for us to tell ourselves a story that other people should be obligated to learn what we know. But that's not how brains work. We have so many things competing for our attention not just cat videos and Candy Crush, but family concerns or sometimes, you know, our jobs and things of that nature. And political information is competing with all of that. So here's a short way to tell a longer story. If you want people to pay attention to politics, you have to find a way to make the information relevant to their core values, to their core concerns, in a way that, that, that people want to think about it. They, they want to take what you're saying and work it into their lives. So many times people like myself, we go in front of an audience and we just talk at people. Hmm. We just sort of give them information and then we get frustrated with them if they don't listen. But a lot of the advice that I give is that a person like myself, before you encounter a group, you should really do a lot of listening or you should really at least do a lot of learning in terms of why are these people in a room with me? Why have they come to this session or why have they come to this website and how can I be of service to them? And if I could think about how to be of service to an audience and in that moment, give people information that they need to make better decisions, then I will have an audience, right? But if I just talk at you and and tell you to eat your spinach, you'll nod because it's polite to do so, and then you'll walk away and think about something else. And forget about you. I guess that that is, I guess, part of the power of being an influential person is knowing the pain of another and, I guess, being able to convey the pain. It's a a huge thing. And, And so many times in politics, we get so excited about our own point of view uh, or an issue that we that that we love, or a candidate that we love, that we forget what it's like to either not know about these things or to be against them, and so then we'll start talking to someone and, and telling them that they should like our candidate, and the other person is offended or they just don't get what we're talking about, and and, and we think it's their their fault. Where in many cases we could, if we were this sounds non-scientific, but we if we were a little more sensitive to what it is the other person needs at that moment or in that time, and find a way to convey our information with respect to that person's needs, that person on their own will become interested, more interested in listening to what we're saying, and then the educational moments can really happen. Hmm. Do, do you sense, um, is, I guess, is that the job of the politician? I mean, I guess it's everybody's job in trying to educate. Well, um, you know... It, Politicians, if you're running for president, usually have a team of people helping you with that, right? They, right. Call, it, they call it messaging. And at its best, uh, what those teams are doing is they're going in and they're listening to voters. They're going in and listening to citizens and hearing the stories of their lives and their struggles with jobs and family and things like that, bringing it back to the candidate, bringing it back to the team, and then trying to figure out, okay, here's a way at this moment that I can help you. And, and I think the best candidates are the ones who can tell a strong story about their policy stances, but seamlessly integrate that into the real lives of people. Um, you know, at, when you're running for state legislature, you have to do that on your own. 
right. uh, or you get a couple of interns to help you. But um, you know, so much of what being a, an effective politician is about, sometimes we, we, you know, we don't, it's easy to make fun of politicians, but the ones that are really doing a great job trying to help people with quality of life, listening is such a great skill for them. They can walk into a room, they spend a little time trying to figure out why people are there, and then they can tell an honest story about themselves but integrate it into the lives of the audience. Hmm. And when you can do that, you actually have an audience. That's right. And yeah, and you'll aggregate the audience. I guess, I mean, you can see that like on Twitter, people that can, they just can talk about the needs of certain people. They start, those people start accumulating this audience and the audience will follow you. And I guess, so that would work, you know, in in old school media, in print, in social media, it, it can work everywhere. Yeah. If you can convey, you understand what's going on with people. Yeah, one of the things that I, when I give people advice on this, I, I tell them a story, which is sometimes we're told that to tell our story, to, for me to go in front of an audience and tell our story. And what we know from looking at brains is that other people aren't inherently interested in my story. What they want to hear me tell is their story. I can be in it, but if I'm in it, what they need to be able to do is see me as some kind of version of them or me as a version of somebody they care about. So like when we go see Star Wars and we see Luke Skywalker, Part of the reason that people are attracted to Skywalker is they see an aspirational version of themselves in Luke Skywalker or a son or a relative, and so you care about what happens to them. Similarly, in education, if I'm going to tell a story about me, it's only going to be relevant to you if you could see yourself in that position, and if my story of redemption or hard work or whatever it is, you say, you know, that would work for me too. Now my audience is going to be interested in that story. But if I just tell a story about myself that an audience can't relate to, uh, they're going to nod to be polite, yeah. and they're going to forget it. And, and and that that comes out with candidates, too, that just don't seem – they're telling a story, and it even might yeah. be a story about somebody and their real need, but it doesn't seem to con- – it's not conveyed. It's not transferred to my heart, and I feel yeah. like they're full of it. No, there was a movie about 10 years ago that came out, and it was called – uh, she's just not that into you. Yeah, I love what that. I try to, yeah, I try to tell people that's life, right? That is the standard. Uh, that should be your standard operating assumption that when you're talking to other people. That's your baseline. And so now what you have to do is try and build a moment where you can touch people's lives, sort of react to, to their situation and say, okay, I understand that. And now I'm going to give you something of value to your life. And if you open that up, people can hear a lot of things. And that's when learning really occurs. Mm. Do you sense, I mean, like I kind of see a mix going on between maybe a more uh, liberal and a more conservative approach where conservatives seem to have cornered talk radio and, um, you know, they've got big audiences and uh, liberals seem to have, you know, kind of cornered maybe television, kind of the John Oliver type of media too. Um, Are these – are these helpful in informing or are they only informing in a one-sided or a – I mean, how do you see these other forms of information? Well, what's certainly true is that you don't see a lot of, let's say, liberals watching Fox News with an open mind. <laughs> uh, so, you know, right. they look at Bill O'Reilly and they start counter-arguing. So this is a very common phenomenon. Um, my background's in mathematics, and early in my career, what I wanted to believe was that people processed information efficiently. But as I did my own research and looked at the research of others, the thing that is absolutely clear is that we typically have a feeling about information first, and maybe later we'll think about it. And so that feeling is typically, does this information threaten us, in which case we want to find some way to get away from it really quickly, 
or does it, you know, boost our self-esteem and tell us that we're right and we're awesome, in which case we want more of it and we want to elevate it. And so most information search works that way. There's a huge emotional component to do I accept this or do I reject it, which is why if you and I were going to try and, like, educate people about a certain policy, what we need to do first is, is understand people's values and then try and tell the story of what we know in, in ways that are consistent with the values that people have. Because if we walk into a room and, and the first thing we say is, you guys have bad values and now we're going to tell you, you know, how the world works. Right. Again, people will, if they haven't got it up and left, the best they'll do is they'll nod at us, they'll be polite, and then they'll leave and never think about it again. Mm. So we've got to tap, we've got to go to people where they are if we want them to listen to what we're saying. Yeah. Um, we have about a minute left, Dr. Lupia. Talk to me um, just about our children and you know, the training and education of political science and civics in our schools. What what can we do as parents? What can we do as people to strengthen their their love of maybe country, but their civic duty and, you know, their, their need to be a participant? Yeah, well, I, you pointed out the first step before the break. Uh, you know, even kids don't want to hear that they should eat their spinach, right? And so, Telling stories about our communities and about our nation and about our government, helping them realize that the aspirations that they have, the lives that they lead, the privileges or or opportunities that they have, the struggles that they have come from this common experience that we've had. And that, you know, things like government don't just happen to us. They are things that we're a part of. And so, you know, constructing narratives and, and providing situations where even young people can be involved in decision making and they can see how their participation makes a difference and even improves just the lives of their classmates. Those can be really powerful examples for children about how participating in the political process can improve the lives of people around yeah. them. So I think a civic education that is more experience-oriented can be a powerful thing for children. I love it. And my kids are asking. Every one of my children, I've had a discussion with every one of them this week about Donald Trump, about Hillary Clinton. I mean, they're asking. They want to know. They're talking about it. So like you're saying, create the narrative and share the stories. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a great job with it. Well, and maybe they're just, you know, maybe they're just in the rough part of town hearing the bad stuff. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Dr. Arthur Lupia, thank you so much. And again, um, go to his website. Um, wonderful resource there as well, arthurlupia.com. And um, you can go find his book, Uninformed, Why People Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Wonderful resource, folks. We've got to educate, get them informed. And, you know, I have more influence with my children than maybe, you know, my neighbors. So I'll start with my children and work my circle of influence out. Great, uh, great resource there from uh, University of Michigan. Cool stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back and wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's um, it's always fun to to just learn more about what's going on. Motivation 101, right? I got to get you involved. If you want to have an informed electorate, you got to get people involved. I also think you've got to take some of the divisiveness out of it. I mean, I get that we have two-party system and the two parties are going to battle. 
But I think a lot of the contention will keep a certain percentage of people out anyway. I also think, um, I mean, I guess the assumption is it will also bring people in because they're really going to want to, to now, for example, somebody's going to want to really get Hillary Clinton or somebody's going to want to get rid of Donald Trump now. But to be the anti-vote doesn't mean you, you're in a good place, right? I mean, so we vote out one of them. It doesn't mean you've got the best candidate. So this divisive, uh, you know, fighting and wrangling between different sides and factions of the parties, it's not demanding any consensus building. It's just whoever's got the most money and the most power can crush and squash the other voices. Which is probably the reason people are so mad in the GOP, right? Because they had a McCain, ugh, too liberal. They had a, um, a Romney, ugh, not, not conservative enough. And so now it's kind of like everyone's mad, whatever. Who cares who we get? Let's just get somebody that will just destroy things. Now, they may also be thinking he speaks the truth, right? He's, he speaks his mind and he totally does. But it's the divisiveness that has probably created what you're seeing in the GOP and what you're seeing even in the uh, liberal side. Progressives pulling Hillary too far to the left. She'll never be able to come back in a general. Oh, unless she faces Donald Trump. Is this the way we do it? And if you're not out there being a participant, you don't have to go be in the rallies against these people. But you can turn out. You can read. You can listen you can learn so that when you hear something that one of them says, you think, no, not true. Yeah, that's not true. You can also be there to, to make sure that they're not, you know, realigning districts in a way that makes these kind of chaotic problems as well. Maintaining some, I don't know, some opportunities to learn from other people. Anyway, collaboration, I believe, is going to be the principle that creates a long-term sustainable nation. We have to learn to collaborate. We have to learn to cooperate. Competition is a wonderful principle, but it will always divide. At some point, you have to cooperate. And that, I think, is what we also haven't informed people about, is how you actually go about cooperating. That's why we do the show, give you more tools to connect, to cooperate, and to lead a healthier life. We'll take a break. We'll be back. You know, we're not going far. Are you kidding me? We're going to come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's Friday. It's Friday. Why do, you, why do you keep saying that? Because people have worked so hard. What, haven't you? Why You've don't you say so that on hard. Wednesday? Because Wednesday is a, a quality day of the week. But, but it's not Friday. This is the day that everyone's driving to work, 
wrapping it up. Today mm. they're thinking, okay, I will be done. I'll you know at five thirty I'll go pick up. I was going to say a video at mm. Blockbuster. <laughs> so you're saying people are only living for the weekend? No, I'm saying your life can now begin because it's the weekend. Because it's the weekend. Huh. It's different. I mean, I enjoy the weekend. It's a different time of the week. Mm-hmm. It is. But I still have a bunch of things to do. It's not like it's enjoyable. I have to mow the lawn. You need you need your son to get older. I have to go sit in a movie theater for two and a half hours. I mean, God, it's what really movie, difficult. What movie are you going to see? What movie do you think I'm going to go see? Um, I'm going to bet it's going to have something to do with a Marvel comic. Yes. Um... We're reviewing it today. Oh, really? Just a hint. Just a hint. Um, this okay. is so you can commit it to memory. Oh, boy. I could just tell you, but you would never learn this way. You mean Captain America Civil War? Absolutely. Yeah. Get your nerd on. I like Captain America. Uh, Rod Gustafson, who reviews our movies, he uh, emailed me yesterday and said he's going to review Captain America Winter Soldier. I went, well, you could do that. That came out two years ago, but a good movie, too. And you need to probably see that before you see Civil War to make sense of it all. You're Alert a church nerd. But well, I hope you're going to review Civil War because I need to know what I'm headed into on Saturday. Hmm. Sounds and like he, a fun weekend for you. And he responded back that, like, after 13 movies, it all kind of turns into a blur for him. It's just one big Captain America blur. And then I stopped responding because it was just going to go downhill from there. If you're not paying attention, details are very important in these movies. Yeah. If you're not paying attention, I don't know. Does How does your wife feel about all of this? <sighs> She's fairly excited to go see the movie. I've shown her all the trailers. We watched another one last night. Like when not you, a lot! When you say she's seen them all, does she want to yeah. see them? Um, there's been a few that she's fallen asleep in, but I wake her up for the cool parts. Mm, I bet she so appreciates that. <laughs> No, it's still going on. <laughs> and you just won't leave her alone. No, I'm like, hey, did you see that? And she's like asleep. And I just get, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. I don't fall asleep in your movies. And she goes, you don't go to my movies. Let no, me get no, this no. straight. I bring up yesterday <laughs> that we have yet to identify 99.99% of the Earth species. Absolutely. And you. In my head, I'm like, Captain that's America. That's crazy. And Captain yeah, America. And you're, but you're nerd alerting me on Captain America. Well, the 99 species on I the mean, planet wasn't really I, – I thought it was ridiculous. I was just – I mean, they're, they're talking about like bacteria. Yeah. So it's stuff you're not going to be able to see anyways. Right. It's not – like I said, it's not like a bear is running through the woods and you go, oh, that's a new species. <laughs> it's like eh, – it's, it's like th- there's an expedition now on the bottom of the ocean, the Mariana Trench. Yeah, yeah. They found a new go- or jellyfish. Right. And it glows. Yeah, and there's that... all these pictures. You're like, yeah, that's cool. But no one's going to see that. It's at the bottom of the ocean. But Captain America – is really not going to actually save anybody. But that squid, maybe it's there's not, some squid ink that could cure Parkinson's. It's not about saving people. It's standing up against government tyranny. That's what the movie's about. No! Yeah. Yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> there are going to be important, like, just concepts, important ideas expressed through superheroes punching each other really hard. Okay. Like, uh, can you give me one? Government tyranny. Give me, give me another one. Oh, um, that the American way isn't necessarily tied to the government. It's tied to the people. Captain America is the hero of the people, not the government. Incorrect. Sorry. No, it's true. Thanks for playing. No, it's true. 
He's never been about about the government and standing up for government policy. He's about the people. Yeah, not even close. What? No, you were buzzed. Well, the buzz doesn't mean anything. It's very true what I just said. It doesn't mean anything to you. It means a lot to the people. Just dismissing it. That means you're no longer in the game. (laughs) You're out. You are out of the game. Sorry. (laughs) Hey, um, what what do you think of – Sorry. I I, I digress. Did you hear about this Israeli man? (laughs) Just to change the subject, he um, an, a man in Israel apparently doesn't want God to answer his prayers, so he has filed a restraining order against the Almighty. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? The plaintiff, identified as David Shoshan, appeared in a courtroom in Haifa on Tuesday demanding that God stop interfering in his life, according to um, an Israeli news website. He said, God told, uh, Shoshan told the court that over the last three years, God had been very negative towards him through court documents. Said he exhibited a seriously negative attitude towards him. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he just will not get, every time I look around, I feel like somebody's looking at me. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yeah. The judge goes on and says he denied the request, which he said was ludicrous, asserting the applicant needed help. Not from the court, but rather from other sources. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> so now you're inviting him to come give me help? No, no, no. We mean other public utility, public sources. Anyway, I personally, my take on this, mm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't sue God or file anything against God. He might counter-sue. Can you imagine when God's attorneys show up? Boy, you are going to wish you could hide. Anyway. I have an update for you. What? We've talked at length about Bodie McBoatface. Uh, my favorite uh, research vessel. He uh, was supposed to go to the in Antarctic to mm-hmm. uh, do research, that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a huge, actually quite large vessel for research from the... Uh, British government. So Bodie McBoatface was the public's clear winner in naming the poll for the UK research ship. But Hold jo- on, here comes a train. <laughs> I know. But wait, wait, hold it's, the boat for a second. It's Steamboat Willie. There goes the train. Hey, Steamboat Willie. But Joe Johnson, Britain's science minister, more or less said a couple of weeks ago that the quirky moniker wasn't going to happen. He was partly right, though. This was in The Guardian. New polar research ship was going to be named the RRS... Sir David Attenborough. Sir David Attenborough. So would you go with Bodie McBoatface or Sir David Attenborough? I would have, yeah, I would have gone for Kip. Kip says this is a tribute to the great broadcaster and yeah. natural scientist, you know, which is probably what they were looking for yeah. for the research it's festival. It's a great thing. That's what or they festival, want. Yeah. Uh, vessel. Vessel. A uh, festival, too, if they want to do a uh, research boy, festival. You want a festival? How about Festival McFestivalist? Johnson tweeted early Friday, but that tweet was followed by another a few minutes later with some happier news for fans of the People's Choice, Bodie McBoatface. They say the uh, the name will live on as a remotely operated vehicle aboard the Sir David Attenborough. Uh, what the Guardian explains that the vehicle, a submarine that was to be uh, dispatched from the Attenborough so the research team can collect samples and data from the uh, from the bottom of the ocean, hmm. from in the water. So uh, they're just going to have this remotely powered submarine, and they're going to call that Bodie McBoatface. There was 120,000 people. Yes, but 
You have a research vessel that gets stranded somewhere, and it's like we have to go rescue Bodie McBoatface. Doesn't make it doesn't sound what good. Yeah, like you've learned from me that if we don't really, if like when we're in a team meeting, yes. if I really don't want anyone else's opinion, yeah, I'm not going to ask for it. <laughs> so no, I'm not asking for it. Oh, then. sorry. So good example. Um, perfect timing. <laughs> so why are they asking for feedback if they didn't actually want to use it? Because if I ask, well, hey, guys, what should we name the Matt Townsend show? Can you imagine what Kaylee and some of them and Ben they, would they say? They probably would have got a more uh, respectable, I guess, in their mind, name for the boat. Yeah. If a TV uh, presenter in Britain didn't go on TV and say, hey, let's call it Bodie McBoatface. Bodie and then, McBoatface. The gen- then the general public gets involved. Yeah. And what they were wanting is fans of this type of research to help name the boat. There you go. But, not, you know, your local yokel out there to <laughs> jump ter- in and take care of that. Terry, what would Captain American do? Captain uh, American? America. Captain America. I, I think he would let the people's voice go yeah. forward. He's for the people. It would be called Bodie McBoatface. I think a great wrong has been wrought upon the people here. You need to take up the mantle. Ben, Ben, Ben. Don't I'll leave that to Captain Britain. They have their own heroes over there. Don't urge him on, Ben. Just trying to get this Bodie McBoatface thing. Ben, you're banned from bringing up any superhero Marvel comic topic ever again. You're, You're not excited about this? About this great movie coming out that's going to change cinematic history? No. The Black Panther is in this movie. Alert nerd. The Black Panther? He is the crown Malcolm? prince of Wakanda. His name is T'Challa. You don't know this? I think he was asking me for money the other day through email. T'Challa? The yeah. crown prince yeah, of Wakanda? Does he need Could money be. because his, he's... No, he's rich. He's a prince. Yeah. His, oh, his, no, he, he was going to give me money. He just needed about his, like $200. His fictional country is much more technolo- technologically advanced, and they built it off of the ore that they mined out of this uh, meteorite that crashed. It's called vibranium, and they made Captain America's shield out of it. But isn't he the one that's looking for like good Christian people to give his fortune to? No, it's not your friend on email. Oh, okay. It's not that guy. Hey, here's one. <laughs> not to change the subject. Sorry. Just tangents again. Mm-hmm. A tow truck owner in North Carolina said he refused to tow a woman's car. Yeah, because she was a communist. Yeah, because she had Bernie Sanders signs in the back window. Yeah. I'll tell you if you remove them signs. Every business dealing in recent history with a socialist-minded person, uh, every time I've ever d- done business with a socialist-minded person, I have not gotten paid, said Kenneth Shoup. Turned out the woman happened to have some uh, disabilities. And so on top of just refusing service to somebody, he left a, stra- a woman with, with some uh, disability issues stranded on the side of the oh, road with a broken down car. Come on, brother. And he goes, well, if I knew she was disabled, I would have waited till another service provider showed up. I would have waited. But I still wouldn't have helped her to tow the truck because I'm not come doing business on. with a communist socialist Bernie Sanders supporter. Well, doesn't that make him a communist? Like, I mean, doesn't it make him anti-American because Americans – Serve. We love. We look out for the poor. Or is he principled? The humble. No, that's not principled. Oh, I'm going to take a person that's that's afflicted, and I'm yeah. I'm out of here. See ya. You can well, take your Bernie sign. That was information he did not have at the time. Well, what's he going to do? He just thought it was an able-bodied person that he was leaving on the side <laughs> so, of the road. <laughs> so, Terry, what would Captain America do in this situation? He Holy would help cow. her. Ben? He would do everything he can. He'd probably fix the car right there. 
He'd lift ben. it up with one hand, fix whatever the doohickey is, and send her on her way. Benjamin. And he'd go, ma'am, have a wonderful day. I'm from serious. Captain America. I'm about one second <laughs> away from losing it in the biggest way I've ever lost it. Come on. Captain America is dead to me. He's not dead <laughs> He's to He's not real. He is not real. This dude was real. Burn, mm-hmm. Bernie mm-hmm. was real. Okay. Lady with disabilities stuck on the side of a road, real. There's a scene. Captain America. There's a scene where <laughs> Captain America and the Winter Soldier fight oh, Iron Man. And yeah. he's in his suit, so it's like you can't really hurt him. Mm. And they're just pounding away, and all you hear is clink, 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 because oh, they're hitting yeah. his iron suit. It's so amazing. And they're, they're, they're tossing the, the shield back and forth, and mm. the iron the uh, Winter Soldier has a metal arm, oh, which wow. at one point Spider-Man grabs it and goes, yeah. dude, you have a metal arm. Weird. Spider-Man's in the movie. Come wow. on. Everything's in this movie. It sounds horrible. And they find a way to balance it out, let all the characters sort of develop their own own storyline a little bit, sort of breathe a little bit. doesn't seem too crowded with all these different characters. It's great. It's going to be wonderful. And now we're in a piano bar. I just walked away. Really? Tips. I went to get a soda. <laughs> got a soda. What's wrong? Can't someone be excited about something? Yeah. That's why I just walked away. <laughs> Keep talking. I'll just walk away, go get a soda. Sorry. Nobody... Can you imagine nobody wants to talk to me about this stuff? I just I, I just don't have a, uh, an outlet. Because, you know, I can talk to my wife, but her she, you can tell she doesn't care. Mainly by the fact that she's not listening at all. She leaves the room in mid-sentence. And then I get this at work. I just, I, I get no support. I thought this was the kind of doctor Matt was, helping people, like... He doesn't really help me. He sort of just kind of lets me stew. Yeah. Other people, he jumps in and offers like tips, and maybe you can, you know, constructive criticism. There's a lot of that. I just, I just get mocked. Yeah. You don't get mocked. You don't put that much effort into it. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, some things aren't worth fixing. I bet Captain America would listen to you, though. He would. He would. He's a fan. What? Nothing. All right. Just waiting to get my show back. <laughs> I turn the show back over to you, Doctor Matt. You. Hey, everybody. That was a fun journey to nowhere. That was a little Townsend Theater for you. Every once in a while, we just like to muck it up. (laughs) Mess up the whole show. Uh, Coming up, uh, we'll be talking about negotiating the non-negotiables. How to resolve your most emotionally charged conflicts like that. We should have learned. We need to learn to resolve these conflicts. Dan Shapiro will be joining us to walk us through his book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiables. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you, um, you know, put up with and enjoy sometimes your coworkers. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, how do you deal with that impossible person? Believe me, if I knew, I would have a lot better show by now. 
based on the last segment we just did. Uh, the one who always seems to be out to get you, you know, when you're at an impasse with your boss, your spouse, your neighbors, how do you reach a solution that's best for both of you? How do you no- negotiate and uh, and make it through those difficult topics, especially when um, when the other person might be making you more emotional and your emotions tend to take over? How do you how do you keep your head about you and negotiate through some of the non-negotiables? Well, who better to teach us about how to do that than Dan Shapiro, who wrote the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. And he's here today to talk about tribal thinking. And um, I'm dying to figure out what he means by that. But Dan Shapiro, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. And you are the founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program. That is correct. Yes. Now, is that PON? Is that Project on Negotiation? So that is affiliated with the program yeah. on negotiation. We are also connected with the psychology department at Harvard Medical School. And uh, so really looking at how you deal with the emotional, the identity-based, the human side of conflict. Because really, isn't that it? I mean, it seems like if we could just remove all emotion and bring logic into the room, we could probably get through this stuff. We'd be a sad species of human beings. <laughs> we totally would. We lost our humanity. Um, I, I think. I think our humanity is our strength and our weakness. Yeah. You know? No. Exactly. Huh. The double-edged yeah. sword. Talk to us about what you mean by um, tribal. Uh, the tribal thinking. Sure. So, over the course of the past twenty or so years, I've been looking at what really essentially causes people to get into conflicts, not the good ones, but the troubling ones, you know, where you tear the relationships apart. And there's this fundamental mindset that we found tends to drive almost every one of these toxic conflicts, and I call it the tribes effect. It's a divisive mindset. It's the moment that, Matt, you and I might be best friends, but all of a sudden I say something that threatens your identity or vice versa. Now it becomes divisive. You versus me, us versus them, this is a mindset. And as a mindset, it sticks. It can stick for days, weeks, generations. Uh, But that's the challenge of conflict. Like, I mean, yeah, you could almost see back in the day two tribes almost living side by side, very potentially simpatico and healthy and strong. They all have the same needs, but they're different tribes and as soon as – I mean, they might even be friends until they realize they're different tribes. And then that creates this, I guess, mindset. And the mind – I mean, the mindset, I guess, is to protect people. Is that – our tribal need is is a need to protect our our core group? Exactly. I mean, so tribes aren't bad things. You know, we yeah. all – the way I use the word tribe, we all belong to dozens right. of different tribes. You know, my family is a tribe. The university is a tribe. The corporation – you have marketing and research, Google, Shell, ISIS. You have the good tribes, the bad tribes. And yeah, exactly. Why are tribes useful? Because we're trying to protect our own family, our own group. And yet at the same time as we are working to protect them, we often become self-sabotaging. We put up this you know, turtle shell in front of us, and it, it doesn't necessarily make for cooperative interaction. And then that... I guess you're saying, is what charges the conflict, the emotion, the, the chemical side. What we found is that there are these forces, these five emotional forces that tend to lure us toward that tribal thinking. And, and the book really talks about these five 
I call them the five lures of the tribal mind. Huh. Five emotional forces that pull us toward us-them thinking, even when it's self-sabotaging and it breaks down the family or the organization. Hmm. Give us some of those. What, what are these forces? Sure. So one example, I mean, think about a recent conflict that you've gotten into, an emotionally charged conflict. Yeah. First of these forces is what I call vertigo. So vertigo is when you get so emotionally consumed in a conflict situation that you can think of nothing but that, you know, that evil other person who per- perpetrated the conflict. Hmm. You, maybe the conflict's at work, you struggle with a colleague, you go home at the end of the day, and yes, you are there at home in body, but not in mind. You know, you're still reeling about what happened at work. And just as true, it can happen at home. You get into a fight with a spouse, a teenager, you go to work, and yes, you are there in body at work, but your mind, your heart, it's still at home. You are in that spinning emotional tornado that I call vertigo. Wow. And, and the moment you get into that, it, it, the conflict becomes divisive. It's me versus you. You don't have to get into it, though. You know, so in the book, I talk about how you can avoid getting into that world of vertigo that we all, of course, do get into. But how do you break out of it? You yeah. Know? This is, I mean, what's so great about it is conflict is as old as anything, right? I mean, we, we've, as long as we've been around, we've had the tribes, we've belonged to our groups, and we've then had to combat, I guess. So mm-hmm. we're really, I guess, trying to just overcome our nature, I, I think that's right. I think we're trying to recognize your nature yeah. and then make rational decisions about our emotional selves. <clears throat> Which way do you want to go? You know, um, I think that's right. So I think our instincts are no different than they were a couple thousand years ago. Uh, and yet, as we develop more and more ideas, we can start to have better reins over our instincts. Yeah, this is interesting. What's another emotional force that kind of pulls us down? Sure. So... So I, I know you, you have a, a strong background in conflict resolution. Yeah. My sense is that people often go to workshops, you know, with all due respect, workshops on negotiation, communication skills, and they come back to work or home. I am a transformed person. How I took a class. Exactly. <laughs> and for about two weeks, they are transformed. And then three weeks later, they go back to the same old patterns. Right. The second of these lures is what I call, I should say what Freud originally called, the repetition compulsion. What I mean by that, it is that we tend to repeat the same dysfunctional patterns of behavior again and again and again and again, even when they are not serving our better good. Yeah. So, you know, my, my wife and I, you know, she's, a, she's trained as a social worker. I do work, obviously, in conflict resolution. And, you know, and at points we'll get into a conflict and you can start to feel it going in the wrong <laughs> direction. You know, like, I shouldn't be saying what I feel like I want to say. Right. I'm not. Oh. Be thinking that this yeah. is the repetition compulsion. That's it. And, and that was Freud. Freud talked about that, huh? And Freud was the originator of this concept. He, he, what he noted, he initially thought, boy, we all want to move toward positivity. You know, we want to enjoy the pleasure. We want to move away from pain. And then he started doing work with women involved in domestic abuse situations and others. And he said, well, wait a minute. Why do they hop out of one domestic abuse situation and go into another? That doesn't seem like that's pleasure. Mm. But there's a compulsion. And, and, it, and my sense is that it, it becomes a part of our identity. You know, whether we are, have good behavior in a conflict or bad, the way we act is the way we think, you know, it's, it's part of who I am. 
don't tell me to act different in this conflict situation. Right. And it's almost That's like the- it, it makes sense, right? Even if it's – even if we know it's not going to work and even if we know um, it's even against our value system to do it, even those two things aren't strong enough to keep us from just getting back in the compulsion. I have a, exact, I have a wonderful friend, brilliant, brilliant lawyer, uh, lives in Pennsylvania was involved in a 25-year emotionally abusive relationship, finally broke out about a month and a half ago, went to D.C., and what do you think she does every day? She's with my friends in D.C., obsessing. Should I go back? Should I not? Should I go (sighs) back? She calls uh, her her, um, life partner uh, every single day. This is the repetition compulsion. On a rational level, she absolutely knew I shouldn't go back. (laughs) This is unhealthy. And yet I regret to say, about two weeks ago now, she went back. You know, but that's not to say it's hopeless. So in the book, when I talk about how can you better understand your own patterns, once you understand them, you absolutely have the power to to make a choice, to make a different choice, you know, to break out of that repetition compulsion. I mean, I guess even just starting to recognize the compulsion is a leg up. No, and that's huge. You're absolutely right. That is the biggest part, you know, to recognize this is the pattern that I am in right now uh, and, and to even name it. You know, so in the book, I talk about a couple, which I can relate to this couple. That's why I wrote this example. The husband traveled a lot. The wife was at home with the kids. And every time the husband came home, it was a mess in their house because the wife, she'd been in control of the house. Now the husband wants to go, you know, manage the whole household. And they got into the same pattern of conflict every time when the husband returned. They gave a name to their conflict. They called it the trip fit, like a fit, you know, like a trip fit. Yeah. And, and, and they said that that was a marvelous help because when they got back home, they could feel that desire to get back into that same old pattern, that negative pattern. But one of them would just say to the other, wait a minute, we're about to get back into that trip fit. You know, do we really want to argue for the next three hours on this Saturday, or should we go out and have some fun with the kids? That's great. Yeah. It gives them a choice. And and, and then uh, is it possible, I guess, to, you know, write an overriding, you know, system process to then – I mean, so that they can do this habitually just like the compulsion is? Yeah. You can't – I mean, neuroscience would say that you can't overwrite it. You know, we develop these patterns. They get synaptically stuck in our brain, mm-hmm. you know. I, the, the, the best bet is to build a new pattern. Yeah. So instead of burning down the current house, you can't do that. Just build a new house. Get some new patterns. So, you know, as the couple initially came together, the problem was that, you know, they'd each feel resentful of the other abandoned in a way. And so they'd fight. And they wouldn't talk. They wouldn't express their feelings. The new way they did it, you know, to avoid that trip fit, was to start off by simply appreciating each other's perspective. It literally helped me understand what it was like this past week while I'm gone. Here's what it was like for me, you know, working day and night while I was away from you. And they start to connect in a very different way. And, and, and again, that, that becomes, um, it becomes healthier, it becomes more aligned to their values, and, and it is a rerouting of their mind. And I guess if you do it over time, it just becomes a more powerful draw, more, or a more slippery or slide that it's easier for you no, to it, take. 
Exactly. I see it That's sort cool. of like a road. You know, every day I drive home from um, Harvard Square, the same path to my home. And, you know, there's, there, there's a very imprinted pattern in my brain. You know, one day I might decide, you know, I'm going to break out. I'm going to take a back road. <laughs> and it's going to feel a little bit weird and cool and exciting and different. And I'm really going to have to focus on day one. But if I take that background for the back road for the next two two weeks, suddenly that feels like my pattern. Done. I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. And that's what we want to do with conflict as well, with these more emotional problems or challenges. Mm. Stick with us, Dan. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Shapiro, who's the founder and director of Harvard's International Negotiation Program. He also has he's got a wonderful website um, to go check out, uh, DanShapiroGlobal.com. We're talking about his book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. Interesting stuff, folks, to help you love a lot stronger and, and just feel better in your life. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can here to give you the information you need, uh, some real-life solutions to your everyday problems. And how about just negotiating those emotionally charged conflicts? Well, who better to teach us than Dr. Dan Shapiro, um, who is the founder and director of Harvard's International Negotiation Program and author of the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. He's been uh, working with us and talking to us today about um, his book and also five emotional forces uh, or lures, as he calls them, that kind of, you know, that, that make conflict harder. One of them is just the emotional vertigo you get when you're chasing you're chasing the snake. There's a great quote that says it's not the snake that bites you. It's chasing the snake that drives the venom to the heart. And uh, sometimes it's your fighting and your need to just you keep thinking about it. You're obsessing about it. He called that vertigo and also repetition compulsion where we just have this compulsive need to keep doing something even if it doesn't work and it's against our better judgment or health. We just keep doing it, especially Dan. Uh, first of all, Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It, it seems like it's it's even more complicated when it's a dyad, right? When it's two people, because I might be able to maybe manage some of my thinking by myself, but then if my spouse keeps doing repetition compulsion and I'm doing it, it's a time bomb. I mean, it's just inevitable if we don't lead it. I, yeah, I, I, it, I, I am convinced that it takes only one to change. Yeah. Uh, in, in almost any situation. People seem to have a stalemate, each waiting for the other to change or to, to, to acknowledge, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, it only takes one to make, you know, to make the change in the relationship. In a couple's relationship, as you were raising, if only one person breaks out of the confrontational mode and starts to appreciate the other's perspective, that other side then goes, oh, and they let down their, their defenses, mm-hmm. the shield starts to go down. They're more open, ultimately, to listening to you as well. And you feel better, right, too, because you're doing what you can. 
Exactly. And you, you said values earlier. You're living up to your own values as well. I assume, you know, we want yeah. Yeah. good, positive values. You're living up to those values. It's hard to do in a conflict, but it does only take one to move things in a different direction. No, I totally agree. And I've seen many a miracle where the one – and they took it. I mean they – they just chose to be healthier, even though their partner didn't change initially. But eventually, kind of goodness prevailed, or sometimes goodness just strengthens the one to leave, like that friend yeah. of yours you were talking about, and stay out. Mm-hmm. You know, because because they right. they're emboldened by living their values. I mean, in the book, one of the things I talk about is the space between people. So, if you imagine a couple, for example, as two stick figures. Each, each member of that couple, each stick figure, has their own identity. You know, I am this, I am that, these are my beliefs, my values. And yet there's this space between them, which might seem fictitious and not real. I think it's very real. It's yeah. the emotional reality that you create through your interaction with somebody else. We know it, you know, in, in the regular sense, when people, two people aren't getting along, we'll often say, boy, oh boy, there is something between them. Mm-hmm. Or, or the opposite, in the workplace, if you see two people who've caught each other's fancy, you whisper to your colleague, I think there's something between them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. But, but, but what this means ultimately is that we can control, each person in the relationship can control the emotions that are there in the relationship by our own individual behavior. So it really does mean there is power to one, to affecting and improving your conflicts. And true, too, because emotion's contagious to a degree, isn't it? So, I mean, if somebody is at peace, you'll probably be more at peace. If somebody's intense and ready to go off, you're probably going to heighten your emotion. No, exactly. That's that's the the most dangerous problem of conflict and its most wonderful blessing. Uh If the negative emotions, it turns into wildfire. If you get the positive emotions, you get this beautiful synergy. How do we... How do we turn off – and I guess, I mean, something is going to – and it might just be evolutionary, you know, genes or whatever that have, have made us prepare for the fight. Um, how do we turn those off or not let them run the show? Well, I, I, I think, you know, one of the most useful things – like if, if you are involved in a deeply challenging conflict situation – one of the, in the book, I've, I've, I've coined something I call your mythos of identity. The basic idea here is, what is the core narrative defining your relationship with the other side? And, and this might sound complicated and academic, but the basic idea, what can you do? What's a metaphor that you can use to describe the nature of your relationship with the other side? And, and if you can really find a metaphor that defines, the, you know, that you feel identifies your relationship, it depicts it. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly helpful. Um, just to give you an example, I was recently working with Israelis and Palestinians uh, at, at the Harvard Kennedy School. So they were, these were mid-career uh, executives, in Israeli, Palestinians, internationals. And I asked them to do this in small groups, mixed groups. I said, find some metaphor that you believe describes the nature of the relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And at first they looked at me and they said, you have to do what? And I said, just try it. It's fine. And they got so into this that they, in fact, wrote a Huffington Post article about it. Beautiful metaphors. One metaphor uh, was of Siamese twins. 
and depicting the Israelis and Palestinians as Siamese twins. Wow. And then it raised all the questions. Is there one heart or are there two? One brain or two? If you slice the Siamese twin in half to create two bodies, are they both going to live or is only one going to live? And they got so deep into understanding the nature of the relationship between them. I, I mean, 20 years of the rhetoric and the, the, you know, the typical political discourse right. would not have gotten them where they got in those 20 minutes moving to a metaphor. Yeah. And, and I think of the family. You know, if, if, if somebody's in a tough conflict with a spouse, a teenager, a worker, what's a metaphor that you think might describe your relationship? And then how can you make it more empowering? You know, so if you see yourself as little David and compared to Goliath, well, you can eat, you know, an extra bowl of Cheerios and David gets a lot bigger. <laughs> Buff up, or, yeah. you know, whatever it is. But you can do crazy things, and then what does it mean to eat those Cheerios? You know, how, how, how can you actually strengthen yourself in your relationship with that intimidating other person? That's great. And, and even if it starts with a negative kind of or an oppressive uh, metaphor like – well, I feel like a slave to a slave owner. You yes. Then you would ask, okay, so how do we empower that metaphor? That's right. What's making you feel like a slave? Yeah. Uh, is there somebody forcing you to stay there and do what you're doing? Why? What's the for- Who's forcing you? That other person? What power does that person have over you? Hmm. Maybe they don't have the power that you think. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, that's the, my friend I was talking about earlier. She felt like a slave to the slave owner her emotionally abusive partner, and she suddenly realized, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm not the slave. Yeah. Maybe this is the wrong metaphor. Maybe I am my own person here, a free person in a free country, and let me, you know, let me proudly walk out of this relationship, which she did for a while. And that, that helps you, I guess, look through a different lens at the same situation. Absolutely. That's well, brilliant. And in a sense, what you're doing is you're getting to the emotional heart of the conflict, without necessarily going through 30 years of psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, literally, it, it's, it's streamlining it. And, and more than that, you know, I often recommend couples, to the extent that they feel comfortable doing so, sit down together and think through, how would we define, what's a metaphor that we think defines the way we see our relationship with one another in the tough times? And, and uh, very revealing. Yeah. And then you can start to think through, well, maybe let's think about a different metaphor here. One that's more empowering for both of us you know, in this situation. Love that. It's, um, it also seems to put you in a different brain, right? Not your fight or flight brain, more of the prefrontal cortex, the creative yeah. reasoning brain. Exactly. So what I found is one of the powerful elements of this concept, of this tool, is that you can then really work through emotional, emotionally charged issues without getting into that emotionally charged experience. Uh-huh. So, so it's not like you're avoiding the strong emotions. They're there. Accept them. Yeah. But how do we... T- but it's, it's very different for me to say, to, you know, in, in a conflict, I feel angry and upset and resentful at you, and I hate you, and uh-huh. you drive me crazy, versus, you know what, I feel like David, I feel like you're Goliath in the situation, and I don't like the way this is working out. Yeah. You, you can talk about that in a much safer way than, you know, than the vulnerability of talking directly about the emotion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like it's outside of you. It's a new, it's a new um, narrative that's not, it's not my heart telling you, I don't know how you say it. It's like a third entity that we're using. You know, 
you're externalizing your emotional there you experience go. Yeah. and talking about it. It's exactly so. I mean, just quickly as an example, when my third son was born, my second son started to act out. You know, punching his older brother, the then eight-year-old, his eight-year-old older brother, and so on. And I got, you know, I sat down with middle, the middle son, Zachary, one day, and I said, look, you know, what's going on? And, you know, it, it, how would you describe what comes over you when you get so frustrated? He said, you know what? It's sort of like the dark side or the dark, uh. side, whichever it was, from Star Wars. I said, ah, I said, well, what's going to happen the next time you feel that coming on? He said, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go for it. I said, okay. He runs outside. What happens about 10 minutes later? He in the backyard, he gets into a fight with his older brother. Darth Vader's I'm back. Exactly what happened. The dark side, it got me. Later that day, I'm sitting inside working. My son, Zachary, comes bursting in. Daddy, Daddy, guess what? What? I had the dark side come on, and I didn't let it get me. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's cool. The new narrative. That's so great. Well, now you have this hook because you now you've, you've created something together that you can help coach each other through. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's easy enough that the seven-year-old can do it. it it's sophisticated enough that we've, we, myself, and, and um, colleagues in um, other parts of the world have done this in international conflicts as well. Uh, Estonia, Russia, there was tension building there. Mm. Talked, some of my colleagues built a metaphor there on help them better understand the nature of the conflict and how to break out. We so really useful across the board. Dan, we really need you to go do this uh, with Hillary and um, Donald. <laughs> And Donald, <laughs> I, you know what? I would be honored and delighted to do it with him. The art of the deal. He's already written the book on it. Um, That's right. <laughs> well, Dan, it, it's it's great stuff. And um, really, I know a lot about Pawn and what you guys do there. Incredible. I mean, really, and people may not know how much you are changing the world in some of the, in some of the hottest you know, negotiations on earth, really, quite literally. So we appreciate having your time. We'd love to have you back in the future as well. Everybody, again, Dan, thanks so much. Matt, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. You too. And go to Dan, uh, danshapiroglobal.com. Wonderful resource, folks. And the book, the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts, maybe starting with a metaphor, maybe checking your tribe, You know, maybe looking at some of those impulses that drive you to automatically react. Great learnings from uh, Dan Shapiro. We'll take a break. Come right back. Wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. This is uh, the goal, remember, to give you the tools to be able to live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Now, remember, this show is all about giving you the tips and the tools to live healthier, right? Happier lives. That includes more sanitary lives as well. We figured there is one place that all of our listeners can relate to, one place we all spend some time every day, and that is the bathroom. So we sent our producer, Leanna Tan, to find some advice on how you can improve your your bathroom procedures to make sure you're um, having a healthier, germ-free life. Here's Leanna Tan. Welcome to another beautiful, busy day. 
I know you all have a lot on your plate, so you don't always get the chance to go through the treasures of the internet, but it's okay. I've got you covered. So I was just reading this article from the Huffington Post, 11 mistakes you're making in the bathroom and how to fix them. And I gotta say, I was surprised at how many of these I'm actually guilty of, and I think you are too. I know you don't have a lot of time though, so I chose the five most pressing matters to share with you and Hopefully, I'll save you from some incurable disease. So here we go. Folly number one, going overboard with shampoo. Okay, this is what I've been trying to convince my roommates of forever. Trust me, it's been very hard to convince my roommates that washing my hair once a week is sufficient and that it's actually a secret beauty tip. But here's proof. Dermatologist Dr. Zoe Dralis told the Los Angeles Times, our scalp produces natural oils that are the ultimate hair conditioner. Too much shampoo strips these vital oils. Proof. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Dralis. Number two, using toxic chemicals to clean. (coughs) The Environmental Working Group says that many of our cleaning products have ingredients known to cause cancer, blindness, and more. What? Okay, scary. So next time you walk out of the shower and you think that you can't see the mirror because it's foggy, you might want to consider visiting your ophthalmologist. Uh Uh-oh. Huffington Post says, instead, make your own green cleaner using fruit. A grapefruit cut in half with salt is an effective tub scrubber, and a halved lemon will make the water stains on your faucets a distant memory. Well, I want my faucet stains a distant memory. And it's great because, as a bonus, you have a snack right there if you get hungry shaving. Yummy. Number three, walking on your bathroom floor barefoot. So you think that the toilet might be the most unsanitary place, but a study for ABC News said the bathroom floor has about 2 million bacteria per square inch. That's gross. It seems so innocent to just walk on your floor barefoot. I feel like the bathroom is a pretty safe place, but I guess not. Guess it's time to throw on the galoshes. (laughs) Number four, reusing your bath towel too many times. I have to admit, I am a culprit of this. I have to pay for my laundry. I have to, you know, put the quarters in, walk down the stairs, sort the laundry. It's just uh, so much effort. But this article says... Bacteria thrive in damp, tightly woven, wet towels. The bacteria ends up back on you when you reuse the towels. And it also says that if you have any open wounds, you could be infecting yourself with whatever's in your towel. And now that I think of it, I have a lot of stuff in my towel I probably don't want in my wounds. I'm pretty sure my towel has plenty of roommate face germs on it. I think that we should just get rid of towels altogether and just use one of those Dyson hand dryers, but full body sized. I mean, no need for blow drying your hair or even a facelift. It's a two-in-one feature. And for number five, keeping your toothbrush too close to your toilet. I never thought that was a thing, but I guess it is within six feet to be exact. An article from the Harvard University Gazette says, Every time you flush, aerosolized particles from the toilet float as far as six feet away. Now that is just revolting. You could be brushing your teeth with toilet water and whatever else is in your toilet. I'm pretty sure I just saved your life. You're welcome. Pretty much your next shower routine should look like you walking into the bathroom with a week's worth of greasy hair, galoshes, and an extendable arm to reach your toothbrush. But don't worry, you'll have a citrusy snack waiting there for you, and you can finish off with a facelift. 
Well, there you have it. Everything you need to know about the bathroom. Now you're five facts wiser in bathroom conduct. I hope you have a sanitary day, and please don't forget to move your toothbrush. You'll thank me for it one day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We don't come with an owner's manual, so what we like to do is deliver the manual Day by day. The information you need. We let it trickle out. Trickling out. A little bit of a time. Your owner's manual. Today we've talked about negotiating. Mm. We've talked about the importance of being informed politically. Mm. Yes. Two wonderful guests. And uh, it's folks, we're just getting started. Sure, it's Friday and we've only got an hour left. But I'm telling you, per pound, this hour... Is the has more fun packed in it per pound than any other hour in radio? I wow. just went out on a limb. Wow! I know you Ever? paused. I paused. That was for dramatic effect. I learned that from Theodore Cruz. <laughs> Did you hear the other day? He was in uh, Indiana and he uh, he paused <laughs> and he he asked a question like you know people are always asking me. And then he paused and some guys, are you Canadian? Yeah, that guy <laughs> had him. And every time he stopped, the guy would toss something in. Yeah. And it was, he pauses all the that time. You're a liar? You, you're a liar? <laughs> right then, I think that is when his will to be president was broken. That that man? That moment. In Indiana, wow. In that second, you could. <sighs> what about the guy that said, hey, let me shake your hand? And then he goes to shake his hand. He goes, whoop, too slow. Psych. And he goes, you look like a fish monster. That's what he followed it up with. <laughs> Honestly. That, that might have broke his will. Why? He's like, what am I doing? There is a point where you're just like, why am I running? Like, why am this? I doing this? Because, I mean, everyone had, even even Kasich had this, it seemed like they had a will to continue. Yeah. But a lot of what I heard was that California is really expensive to run a campaign in. Ah. And so if it's not worth it. Thanks, California. It's just too For expensive. ruining it for the rest of us. We were so excited to watch it all go to purchasing, the convention. Purchasing media, getting you know rally facilities, vehicles, all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, beach balls, right. Uh, volleyball nets for the beach, new attire. Except Trump. He just flies in. Lands, does his thing, flies his plane twice, and then gets back to the Trump Tower Cafe. He's going to carpet bomb most of L.A. with leaflets. (laughs) Vote Trump. Vote Trump. Just won't be disappointed. Litter all of Southern California. Today, for some reason, is called. He's not. It's um, it's no homework day. No homework day. That's good for the kids. The kids love that. Oh, they love that. And it is Friday, but it's also no pants day. Yeah, I thought you would enjoy that. Well, that's the last thing Ben needs to hear. Well, we don't tell Ben. It took us like two years to get him to wear pants. Yeah. Anyway. And even now, I there are days when I just come in without them. And he's like, yeah, it's optional. Yeah. I'm not front-facing employee. I can do whatever I want. It always says no shirt, no shoes, no service. That's right. Never, never mentioned pants. pants. That's a great point. They assume people think, well, maybe I should wear some pants. <laughs> but, but they got to be specific. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you ought to. If you're going to rob a store... Hmm. What store would you rob? Ooh, good question. 
something worth it. Like a Tiffany's. Yeah, except the, the, the more expensive the merchandise, the better the security system. Yeah, good point. So you need to find a, a nice balance between the quality stuff but low-quality security to be able to make it worthwhile. Right. Would, um, would it matter if uh, – forget the level of security hmm. if you knew you had four of your buddies with you? Okay. Because that could make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. Bad boys, bad boys. And actually, you answered the question wrong. Oh, didn't know it was a quiz. Oh, it's always a quiz. Okay. Four were arrested after an armed T-Mobile store robbery. Mm. Four people arrested shortly after they allegedly staged an armed takeover. I mean, that's a big deal. We're going to go in and take over a T-Mobile store in Torrance, California, Sunday night, the, sus- the suspects allegedly took iPhones, iPads, and other electronic devices before fleeing in a car. Soon after the robbery, police located the car. Weird. Hmm. A little more than two miles away using GPS coordinates on the phones from the stolen stole. electronics. Yeah. <laughs> That's a new wrinkle that the, the common crook isn't thinking about. That is so Tracking funny. devices on the phones. Like, I don't know, Jerry, do you think they're tracking these devices? No. Probably didn't even think about it. They don't even know which ones they are. Take that. That's Sometimes maybe it's not better to have four brains in the car if none of them are on. (laughs) None are working. And if you do have four brains in the car, you ought to turn all the devices off. That's right. Makes it easier. Then you can't be tracked. You know, another way to track it is, did you hear about the hungry Australian cow? No. It's a great story. Trying to remember since I gave you this story. Australian police and rescue authorities urged people to register their rescue beacons after they raced to the site of a distress signal, only to find out that it had been set off by a hungry cow. He was bumping up against it or something. (laughs) Police were quickly sent to the remote Northern Territory location 70 miles south of Darwin, but they and the cattle station staff found themselves in a paddock with nothing around it but grazing cattle. You race out there with all the rescue crews. And, oh, it's just cows. <laughs> Only when it grew dark did one of the party uh, near the town Adelaide, of Adelaide River notice that the flashing light of the beacon, which it was soon revealed had been activated by a cow trampling and then trying to eat it. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Always put your uh, trigger emergency beacon, I mean your emergency beacon where it can't be triggered by a cow. By a cow. That's a good tip. Or your children, I'd say. Right. Or a goat. Cows, kids. Vermin. Mm. Watch out for vermin. Yep. Mitt Romney does. <laughs> vermin. Anyway, crazy town. What do you do? I found this story. What? New Jersey troopers arrested a woman for remaining silent during a traffic stop. Hold it. Yes. Don't they, don't they say you have the right to remain silent? That is part of the process when you are arrested, yes. But... That got her in trouble? Yes. Because she's silent. She remains silent. So the, she's, the woman was speeding, and they, uh, they pulled her over. This is right on the Jersey-Pennsylvania border, yeah, right in that region. And uh, Rebecca Musera, she's an attorney from Philadelphia. She knows she doesn't have to say anything. So the police, the, the troopers, the, the, the patrol officers, they come up to the door, and they say, license and registration and insurance. So she hands it to them, and they go, do you know how fast you were going? She didn't answer. 
Jeez. And they they're looking at her papers, and they said, "Do you know? Do you, I, I did you hear me? I said, how fa- do you know how fast you were going?'" Again, she did not answer. And then another uh, trooper came up on the other side and tapped his wind his uh, flash, the man. flashlight on the window and demanded an answer. She did not answer, so they cuffed her. Wow! Did they know they were cuffing? Probably not. An no, attorney because she didn't say anything. And then as they're walking her, let's see if I find it here real quick. Uh, Yes, yeah, so what are you being pulled over tonight? The other one came up and talked to her. Uh, you're going to be placed under arrest if you don't answer my questions, the trooper told her. And uh, I just found this whole story hilarious. She, uh, she she knew as an attorney that she did not have to answer. And then the trooper ordered her out of the vehicle. As the two troopers cuffed her and walked her towards the, the car, she asked, are you detaining me because I refuse to speak? The trooper goes, yeah, yeah, we're calling it obstruction. Wow. Like obstructing justice. The troopers placed her in the back of the car. They read her her rights, which include, you have the right to remain silent. This is all on the dash cam video. (laughs) So they took her back to their their headquarters. Their lair. Their supervisor viewed the video and then promptly released her. We're so sorry, ma'am. She has filed a uh, civil rights lawsuit because your rights were obviously violated. So. They're going to have to review some uh, some training, it looks like, and uh, kind of figure out what, what went wrong and uh, why they arrested a lawyer for her right to remain silent. I have a feeling silent. they're going to regret that for yeah, a very, 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 very There's long a problem time. there. So I thought that was kind of funny as they, they're, they're, they're getting on her and, and make, you know, trying to make her speak and then read her her rights what if she, she gets in the car. What if she couldn't speak? I guess she would have had to gesture, I can't speak. Yeah. And she just, I mean, you can just hand them the documents and then just not talk to them. Wouldn't their attorney say, well, look, we're trying to just understand what's going on with this lady. Is she catatonic? Is Mm. she drunk? Is she under some influence? Yeah. Or is she just exercising her rights? It was a welfare check. That's what they were trying to do. That's all I was doing. Make sure she was okay. Oh, those people. But they always, the police always ask you, do you know why I pulled you over? What's the proper answer to that question? Uh, no, sir. I always go, no, sir, because if you say yes, ma'am. then you're admitting Don't to something. Don't say sir to a ma'am. Well, that, that's true. No, officer. And then... Uh, because I once said, yeah, I was speeding. Yeah. And then the guy's like, how fast were you going? I was going about 80. The last time I got pulled over, I just said I felt like I, I was going with the flow. And then he chewed me out for I wasn't going with the flow, except for the three cars that passed me right before he pulled me over. But that's a detail that mm-hmm. I'm not going to have to bring up because you just pay the ticket and move on. You know, another fun thing to say if you get pulled over mm. and they're like, do you know why I pulled you over? And you're like, was it because I was loading my handgun? That's not what you While watching say. a Netflix video? Was it because of that? Yeah, no. That would not be the No, uh, it proper. is so funny. They laugh so much. It's that. That's right up there with like a TSA joke. Mm. Yeah, I'm carrying a bomb. Yeah, they love that. Yeah. That really kind of shuts things down. Yeah, it feels like people are losing their their ability to enjoy their workplace. Apparently. They're all so uptight. No more fun anymore. Like you can't even call in a prank at Burger King anymore. <laughs> well, actually, you can. You can. You've heard us mention this very prank. And we... We say we tell you this not so you go do it. We tell you this so that you don't become a bad boy or a victim of a bad boy, which is just as bad. A prank caller tricked workers at a Minnesota Burger King. We've mentioned this before, but this was in California, the mm-hmm. first one. Here's another one. And they tricked him into smashing the windows of the restaurant. 
to keep it from exploding. Unbelievable. Police said um, this, is, this has gone down in other stores already, so pay attention. Police said employees at the restaurant in Minneapolis suburb uh, in Rapids got the call from someone claiming to be with the fire department. This is Officer Jones. We're calling about a gas leak. <laughs> um, the caller then said the restaurant could explode, so they needed to relieve the pressure. And the manager and other employees believe the collar and smashed all of the windows on the ground floor. Boone said that there was no immediate cost for estimate or estimate for damage. Um, someone placed a similar call to a Burger King in Shawnee, Oklahoma, claiming there that there were high levels of carbon monoxide in the building. That the uh, window damage there cost about ten grand. So. They're thinking that might be about the price in uh, California because everything's more expensive in California. Absolutely, as the as the uh, Republican and GOP that have all backed out realized. Um, Burger King in Morro Bay, California, they had a gas leak, a purported gas leak, where they had to have people break out all the windows. That cost thirty five thousand dollars. So Terry, yeah, yeah. If Captain America were to get this call, yes, no. No. Oh, come on. No. <laughs> what would he do? He would probably verify the source of the phone call first. <sighs> Maybe just open a door, not bash all the windows out. For those that didn't hear last hour, that weren't listening, <clears throat> um, we had a major moment of nerd festivus. Nerd festivus, wow. It's a new holiday. Yeah. Um, I, I'm on a show trapped between two nerds and one nerd eggs on the other nerd to talk about Marvel <laughs> comics all the time. And then the other nerd just sits there and giggles. Hmm. Sounds and difficult for you. It's a horrible, horrible life for all had. Nerd alert! Which is why we have new alerts. Hmm. So... We don't need to have you mention anything about Captain America because our next guest, Rod, will talk about it. So he will. We'll get to Rod. But if you were to do something. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's my angry nerd alert. Um, we'll get to Rod. Rod will talk about Captain America, Civil War, which is going to be released, uh, I guess, today, this weekend at least. And uh, we'll get to that and also come back and have a, a wonderful, enlightening discussion with our producers about Mother's Day, folks. Don't forget your mothers. Hello. We love them. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, as we like to do on the weekends, you got to get ready for the movies, right? So who better to help us to uh, kind of navigate through the movies that will be released than Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com, a, a wonderful resource for parents where you can go read their reviews but also find uh, talking, talking points that you can go through with your kids on these movies and especially – Today's topic of Captain America Civil War, this is one your kids are going to be clamoring to get to. Rod, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Matt. Walk us through this. What did you think of Captain America Civil War? 
Well, okay, Matt. So first of all, as I'm sure people have heard me said say this too many times, this isn't my favorite genre. You know, these I was never a big comic book reader except right. for Archie. I used to read Archie and Dennis the Menace. So all of these Marvel comic uh, superhero characters characters i am learning about them with each passing movie because fortunately i have a lot of friends who understand these characters so i i usually take one of them to the movie theater with me and then i say okay is that how the book went how did the book go and they can tell me in intricate detail all about these i we're exactly the same in fact we just had a major nerd fest every time a new movie like this comes out because everyone i'm in the studio with they know Uh everything about these things Yes, yes, it's crazy. Exactly. So, and, what, but what what did you? I mean, is it is it does it jive with the books? Does it jive with the or the um, magazines? Is it the, is it the real Captain America? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it pulls and is, see the other thing they can do with these things that I'm still trying to get my head around. Matt is that they can, you know, somebody dies in one series, but he's still alive in another series, or he's a ghost in it. Who knows? Yeah. So. So, you know, it's, it's all very convoluted. But the reason I'm going here in the first place is these films are getting intricate enough now. We're done with the backstories where, or what are called the origin stories where we introduce these characters. I was good with those movies. But now we're getting into the films that, you know, if you haven't watched at least the last movie or even better yet, the last two Captain America movies and some of the Avenger movies, you're you're going to be lost in space. You really are. <laughs> and so just a little bit of a heads up to parents right there that, you know, if if this is new to your children and let's say they were a little too young when the first one came out, well, maybe hit Netflix or something and play a little catch up, which you can do at home with some popcorn and have a good time. Now, having said all of that this is very much like all of those other movies as far as what content issues you you can expect and the big word is violence of course because the movies are all about violent conflict and about people you know bad guys and good guys and that type of thing now this film earlier this year we had batman versus superman and what this movie really is is it's captain america versus iron man there's a political difference that happens in the avengers and the avengers is this group of superheroes that includes captain america iron man the falcon ant-man like a whole pile Mm -hmm. of them spider-man is introduced in this movie and that's the best part of the film I was finding it a little bit like really too serious until Spider-Man comes on the screen. Then all of a sudden it breaks into comedy for the second act and then it gets real serious again at the end. But the big issue that has happened is the United Nations has decided that they want more control over these superheroes because they keep on... Uh, causing all of this rampant destruction, collateral damage, and and people are dying, even though they capture the bad guy, what about everything else that goes wrong? And I've often wondered that. So the United Nations is saying, okay, guys, we've created this protocol that you guys need to follow. Well, Captain America is not going to have any of this. He says, no way, we can't. We don't want to be under the control of governments. But meanwhile, Tony Stark, he had a real bad time with his Ultron experiment, which <laughs> happened a couple of movies ago. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, I'm recognizing now just how bad things can go. We need government oversight. So there's a political difference between the two of them. And what have we got? We've got the Republican Party here, Matt, where everybody's fighting. Yes. <laughs> They all want the same thing, but they can't figure out who should lead and who's going to be the right guy. So, wow. so that's basically what happens in this film. That is, it is complicated, though, isn't it? 
It's like you it's, need you need a rundown. You need to you need to have a little map to figure out who does what. It really is. And at one point in this, when we get to one of the climatic battles, we have twelve Avengers, six on each side, who are fighting for these two the two sides of this political question and they start duking it out on the tarmac of this German airport. Well, you know, that takes about twenty minutes. And for fans of these characters, you know, they're just locked to the screen. For the rest of us, you're thinking, gee, my popcorn's kind of getting empty, and maybe I'll take a bathroom break and come back in 20 minutes. Yeah, right. I missed very much. What did you, um, what would you grade this? What was your grade on this? So B minus on this one, and it's just teetering, you know, B minus is our, our lowest recommended grade, as we call it. Part of the issue is the violence in this one is fairly intense. I was surprised. It's, it's, it's up there. Now, of course, these Marvel characters, this group is the one that is distributed by Disney, and Disney usually never goes into the R rating. This is still a PG-13, and I have definitely seen more violent films than this one, but there were some little, you know, seven- and eight-year-olds in my audience and parents. You'll want to approach this one carefully. A lot of on-screen shootings, and we see a man being tortured by drowning. We see uh, electrocutions. There's a, a, a lot of violence that's on the screen. Most of it is bloodless, but not all of it. We mm. do some blood effects as well. So that'll be the big concern for parents in this one. A few profanities. We've got about three scatological terms and some other profanities. They're relatively infrequent, but they are there. But the violence is going to be the big flashing light. No sexual contents, no substance abuse. So we're clear in those areas. And uh, probably a lot of uh, use of the shield by Captain America in a violent way. Oh, yes. That frisbee (laughs) is constantly going. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Where do you learn shield techniques like that? (laughs) I know. I know. Good stuff. yeah, yeah. I well, wish I, I wish I had those skills. Man. I do too. Well, Rod, uh, you do have those skills, by the way. You just, you didn't know it. You just go get a pie tin and start tossing it around the backyard. You'll pick it up. Uh, again, Rod, we appreciate your work there. And people can go to parentpreviews.com. They'll see the entire review there, right? They will see the review. And we just put up our video review. You can watch Rod review the movie. Beautiful. So then they can get the whole the whole thing, and they, and every other movie you guys have ever reviewed. So it's it's a great resource for parents. Rod, thank you so much, and, and have a great weekend. Thanks, Matt. Take care. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we got to remember moms this weekend, uh, Mother's Day. Two of our producers will be talking to us about your moms and uh, how to make sure you celebrate them and, t- and 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 take care of them correctly. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in studio, two of our uh, wonderful producers. And uh, Leanna Tan is with us. Caitlin Thomas is joining us. They're also known as the Petite and Proud Producers. P-Cubed, we call them. P-Cubed. <laughs> petite and Proud Day was just a few Wouldn't days ago. And, petite uh, Squared? We were the mascots Cubed would be three. No, but I had three Ps. Petite Petite and- Proud Producers. Three Ps. Okay. It's a three, Pete. Welcome to the show. Um, <laughs> today, the petite producers and proud producers are um, talking about mothers. Phenomenal is the other P. Thank you. 
We are talking about Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, no, because this weekend is Mother's Day. Mother's Day. I, no, I guess so, you know. I have a mother. You do? Yeah, do I just, you? I didn't know if you I mean, we all, we all have a mother, right? That's why we're all here. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, so we wanted to talk a little bit more about mothers and why this is so important and why yeah. this is mothers, a holiday. Why like, do we celebrate where mothers? Where would you be without a mother? Not that's here. exactly our we point, Matt. Right. So that's why – and we're celebrating them. And we know that y- we want to get something like to show our true love and appreciation for them. Right. And right. it's not just a flower maybe. maybe right. it's more than that. I maybe it's flowers, more than that. Um, so we looked up – Leanne and I love to do holidays and look up the history of holidays. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh-huh. But we found that oh, yeah. celebrations of mothers and motherhood can be traced back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Okay. And they used to hold festivals in honor of the mother goddess. Wow. Yeah. So there was two mother goddesses, Rhea and Sybil. So they used to have big celebrations to celebrate yeah. them. But then it became a Christian festival um, known as Mothering Sunday as time went on. So it went from some pagan Yeah, to a Christian to holiday. To a Christian holiday. Interestingly enough. That's now in everyone. Holiday. So then we decided, Matt, we want to take you around the world a little bit. Because okay. we, like, we like to travel. Well, yeah. But totally. we're actually poor, so we can't really travel. Right. So we travel on the internet. Virtually. In the UK, the tradition... <laughs> <Virtual> travel. <laughs> In the UK, the tradition of celebrating Mother's Day began um, a whole lot earlier, obviously, than it did in the United States. Right. It was the first country in the world to dedicate a day for mothers as early as the 1600s. Wow. So mothers have been important, right, throughout history. Um, Ma- many argue incredibly important since day one. Right. <laughs> I would say that's a great point. Yeah. But we, it's I just words. interesting because as we, as I was going through, I thought some maybe some other countries outside of the United States um, about outside of Christian um, dominant countries yeah. maybe wouldn't celebrate it so much, but they do. In fact, even in Canada, Mother's Day is the most popular festival after Christmas and Valentine's Day. Really? Yeah. everyone has a mom. So the biggest festival after Christmas and Valentine's Day is Mother's Day. Well, it should be the number one probably. Yeah. Well, yeah, many would argue that. Uh, half would argue uh, maybe Father's Day would be a great day. I've never heard that. We're not talking about Father's Day. We're talking about Mother's Day. Okay. But now Mother's Day, um, you were just talking about how – anyway, keep going. Canada is the number is, – is also big on mothers. Right. Spain. Spain. They like their mothers. In Spain, they actually don't celebrate it in May. They celebrate it in December, so on December 8th. Wow. And they pay tribute not only to their own mothers on this day but also to the Virgin Mary. Wow. Yeah. So Mother's Day in Spain includes religious celebrations across the country. It, it's like – Everybody has been – everybody has learned. The importance of mothers. I wonder where they would have learned that. Their so mom. regardless of From culture, regardless of culture, right. regardless of religion, regardless of um, you know race or gender or anything, yeah. I think we can all agree that Mother's Day is a very important very, holiday to recognize. Very important. So we want to talk yeah. a little bit about that. One of my favorite quotes – in a video that was made for specifically for Mother's Day, says the life doesn't come with a manual; mm-hmm. it comes with a mother. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, and yeah. so we want to talk a little bit more about what we have learned from our mothers. Okay, great. This is good. I learned a lot. I think my mom probably won't like that I'm telling this on air, but when I was little, I mean, obviously she taught me how to walk. I walked when I was, you know, like a little baby. Yeah. And as soon as I walked, the first <laughs> one of the first things she taught me was how to walk to the fridge and get a Pepsi for her. So I never she? needed a Pepsi. <laughs> I could just get the little... Get me a Pepsi. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> She'll probably That's not fantastic. like that. That's really good. My mom once, That's we great. went bowling as a family and my mom taught us her fingers were a little bit swollen from 
the weather had changed so her fingers had swelled up mm-hmm. and she put her fingers inside of a bowling ball and she went to bowl but the bowling ball never left her fingers and she fell straight her face mom i love you i'm sorry but she taught me never to put a bowling ball in your hand if your fingers she are also swollen. taught you never to tell that story on the radio she did, on national radio anyway. are swollen fingers is that a common thing I mean, I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm 46 years old. When the weather old, changes, my, yeah, I've I get it. When you're holding babies and, you know, yeah. taking care of the housework, it's just... Getting you know? Pepsi. I mean, that was a funny <laughs> lesson. That was sad because she was hurt, but it was funny oh. for everybody else. What about you, Matt? What funny lessons has your mom taught you? My, well, well, my, I've got a great mom. My mom was a, a single mom that took care of four kids. Wow. And, and then her final child came named Matthew, which means gift from God. Oh. <laughs> okay. What's the laughing about? I'm sorry. I just heard crickets chirping. I was weird. Was okay, weird. weird. And then um, I actually happened to have been brought home on Mother's Day. Oh. So yeah. again, symbolically. That's her worst day. A gift. No, a gift of God. A gift from God. Oh. Anywho, um, I was her favorite. My mom taught me a lot of things. My mom taught me. Um, uh, well, I can't. That one won't work because I don't want you guys to know that. My mom taught me. That you got to work hard. My mom taught me that too. She taught me to be responsible. So I would um, – because she had to work, I had to get – I got dressed and I would get my football gear on to go to my football practice. You played football? Yeah, you did. I'm yeah. sorry. I yeah, didn't I look did. surprised. I'm sorry. That was weird. Yeah, that was that rude. Was weird. That was rude. Um, and I – but I'm like, well, man, I mean it's a long way. I have to ride my bike like miles. Right. And she's like, well, just put your helmet on. You'll be fine. Because, you know, if That's I got a good hit, mm-hmm. you should have your helmet I'd on. have helmet and pads. Everything would be fine. You're solid. Solid as a rock. So and you wore all your football gear on your bike yeah. to go to practice. I it, actually can picture it now. It was Thank a horrible you. blind spot. Though, I couldn't picture football before, helmets. I'm sure you, you, can't, you can't see, see uh, your peripheral vision yeah. at all. <laughs> but she taught, me, she taught me how to make my own food. She taught me. I mean, Wait, why do you always bring Go-Gurts then? Well, I don't bring them. I found those. Oh. Those weren't mine. Those were just in the fridge. Oh. That's why I gave them to you. They're kind of... Happy Mother's Day. You know, one of the best things my mom taught me... What? What's this uh, coping skills is what my mom refers to it as. But when I was growing up, if I ever went through a major disappointment... Yeah. Or... Like a a breakup. That's a great example. Like a really hard breakup or when I... Failed a class. I've never failed a class, but when I failed a test... Got a D in a class. I remember failing a test... And my mom always said, okay, you're allowed to be sad and eat ice cream and, and cry and feel sorry for yourself for 24 hours. Until your fingers swell. No. 24 hours is, is, is what is the time that she gave us to okay. feel sorry for ourselves. Okay. And to and then that's, after 24 hours, we, were, we had to pick ourselves up. That's And good. we had to smile and we had to continue going. And that's really helped me a lot, especially as I've gotten older. Because, yeah. there, I mean, there's a lot of disappointments in this life. But I remember my mom, I can always, I still hear my mom's voice saying, 24 hours. After 24 hours, you have to be... Is that, you is that why you going. only come to work every other day? No. Yeah. Matt, that's weird. Sorry about that. I'm trying to pay my tribute mom, to my mother. Yeah, that's my, a great mom. My mom Seriously. taught me a lot. Of, she taught me music, how to appreciate music. She uh-huh. taught me how to sing. I mean, I probably didn't meet those expectations. But, I mean, she taught me how to enjoy it and um, play piano a little bit. And so our, our house was always filled with music because of my mom. And she also taught me, like Matt said, like, 
work hard and pray hard, actually. That's great. Um, so I, I liked those too. She also taught me to wash Ziploc bags so you don't always have to buy new ones, you know? And also to save the Tupperware from like the butter and stuff to, you know, I use those skills in college now. To I, store yeah. food. I don't invest just, in Tupperware. I if just, the butter's gone, you can still use the butter container. Exactly. <laughs> A resourcefulness is because what that, she taught me. that's a top ramen you know, bowl. exactly. Exactly. That can hold my exactly. spaghetti. She taught me how to see the world in a new light. Really, you That's, know. See what a great mom. I love her. Her name is Kelly Tan. Shout out to my mother. Hi, yes. mom. And my grandma. What's, Eleanor what's Caitlin? What's your mom's name? My mom's name's Jennifer. Hi, mom. I love you. Oh, Matt, what's your mom's name? My mom's name is Carolyn Townsend. Hi, Carolyn We're Townsend. Sorry. Happy We're Mother's so Day. Sorry, She's Carolyn. incredible and wonderful, and has got to put up with me, which you know. Not She's easy. A saint. She is wow. A she is a woman. saint because who else would have a gift from right. God? <laughs> well, we, saint. to wrap this all up, we just wanted to make sure that all of the listeners remember to pay their respects to their moms this weekend. To tell their moms that tell your mom that you love her. Yeah. Send her some flowers. Make her a cake. I just mean, show up. Just talk, show up. Listen, just be there. And write her a letter. Really, that's all that moms want. They just want you to be there for them. And so we want to wish all the moms listening a happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. That was love great. You. Wow. And a shout out to moms. That's cool. Oh, moms. You're a job. You have one of the most important jobs. I would say the most important job in the world. (laughs) Again, none of us would be here. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be who I am without my mom. And we probably all ought to step up and and make sure we thank them for that. Exactly. And not embarrass them. Um, And not make their lives harder. Don't bring up the bowling story on national. Yeah, don't do that. National radio. radio. Don't do that. Mom, we love you. (laughs) And um, you know what? Someday you guys will be moms. Really? You think so? I hope so. Well, I mean, not at this rate, but there's a chance. <laughs> You're so mean. There's an outside chance. You are so mean. There's an outside chance that you guys might Rude. have kids someday. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks. And again, moms, we love you. Seriously. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. These are uh, the the phenomenal. wonderful, phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, producers, Leanna Tan, Caitlin Thomas, Matt Townsend here. We'll be right back with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. One of the greatest moments. In motion picture history, this is the Matt Townsend show. We will uh, we're going to sail it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Jack, I'll never let go. <laughs> I'll never let go. Uh, she lets go of his hand. What the? I slip? never understood that. <laughs> I know. I'll never let go, and then she let go. I understood. See, only spiritual people get it. You know, it was. Uh, Talk us through it, Brian. It's kind of more metaphor. My heart. You're always going to have my heart. I'm never going to let go of wow. your heart. You'll never let go of my heart. We're going to be on one accord on a spiritual <laughs> level. Let, let, let me check if you got that right. Oh, so close. <laughs> you were so that. close. How come we don't have a buzzer? Oh, we have that for yeah. countdown, right? We, we, have we can't let everybody have a buzzer. You're right. I would abuse, I would abuse that buzzer like no other. You were so hey, close, kind of Brian. <laughs> you were like just one. You were just one point off. See, the, the thing about it is, like, I have a difficult time thinking, you know, or, or saying what I'm trying to think. 
and mm. in my head it yeah, sounds it's perfect. like it, oh my god nailed it it's beautiful it's like <laughs> 11 out of a 10 but yeah. when i say it it just comes out so wrong and i'm like that was not the direction <laughs> i was trying to go for we we actually captured video or audio sorry of you um talking it through so let me just play it back for you <laughs> and um i want you to tell me if this is what you meant to sound like <laughs> <laughs> did you because it didn't it didn't quite sound probably the way you meant it i no, thought of no. the great quote from billy madison as brian was going off on that spiel <laughs> and i quote mr logan what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things <laughs> I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything yeah. that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's it. That's it. That's my favorite part of that movie. Yeah. That was perfect. Odoyle rules, too. Odoyle rules. <laughs> You're going down, O'Doyle. You guys, you're always you've always got you've always got some movie quip something. You, you're you're so well read in movies <laughs> from the 80s and it's 90s. A sad commentary on our generation. It is it's, <laughs> on where we are as human beings. It's very sad, but in a I don't good think way. It's sad at all, man. Oh, I think it's, I think it's good because we didn't have like iPads and iPhones and all that stuff. That's true. Know? We were so, the we were the transitioning generation. I didn't even have a yeah, cell phone until I got man. home from my mission. I didn't have a cell phone until I was like in 10th grade. Man. I I still and don't. The reason why my mom gave me a cell phone is because. <laughs> She couldn't get a hold of me. And I would come home like at eight o'clock at night, and she's like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Well, I can't talk. I can't call anybody for a ride." Yeah. <laughs> come on, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I don't even have a cell phone, mom. She's like, "You make a good point." Hey, um, do you guys uh, are you going to be lining up for Captain America this weekend? Captain Wait, that America opened up last night, didn't it? Yeah, are you, you going to be? Are you going to get there? What? Do, I mean, Man, I know I you're like big to. into that. I would like to. I, we, you know, I was talking about this to to the group this morning, and I I said. Uh, you know, I it's messing me up going and watching movies with the luxury seats because you get the yeah. recline and and you know I, I brought a, a blanket with me and my wife and you know uh, it's just so comfortable heated seats all of the above and it messed me up because I never want to watch a good movie like this mm-hmm. uh, without it. So uh, the fact that all of the seats are luxury <laughs> seats are taken for like the next two three weeks yeah I you can't do won't it. see it for a month. Oh, so, yep. What a letdown. Are you Team Iron Man or Team Captain America, Brian? Uh, I'm Iron Man. What about you, Matt? Um, I'm um, I'm Team America, Captain America. Mm, America. Nerd alert! <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. What, how about you, Spence? What are you? I mean, you see, you look like Captain America. I am mm. Captain. I am Captain America. No, I am Team Captain America. I love Stephen Rogers, man. Let me sing along. I actually I saw you practicing with a pie tin, throwing your shield all around the studio today. <laughs> was that not an impressive display of athleticism? That was totally incredible. I mean, it's the new Star Wars lightsaber thing where you throw a pie tin around. Yeah, as you, your shield. You. Hey, here's the question: Can you guys explain this? Because again, I can't do everything. But today, or there's a few days, you know, today's no homework day for the kids. Oh, it's not I Love Hispanics Day, thanks to Donald Trump? No, that was how to offend a Hispanic yesterday <laughs> on Cinco de Mayo. And um, that was today's also no diet day. But it's also, and I, this is what I need you to explain to me. And Brian, you could do it. I don't care, Spence. Um, it's no pants day. It's no pants wow. day? Yeah. That's, uh, that's not going to fly at Google. I don't know. 
why not at Google? Well, so you know that. Uh, oh, we can, no, Brian, be careful. There's no rules at Google, right? Or initially, there was no rules. Yeah. So you can do whatever you wanted to do. Uh, take a nap wherever, you know, come in to work whenever, whatever. And so uh, shortly after that, um, they made one rule, which was you had to wear clothes to work. Yeah. So that's the only rule that you have at Google. So at Google. Obviously, somebody came to work with no clothes on uh, for right. the rule to be established. So uh, I would assume that that, you know. There's always one, though, don't you think, Bri? There's always one. There's like that one person that's just going to mess things up. Like, come on, man. And he probably came in and was like, look, you said no rules. So. Now, now, Brian, who do you think that would be? Who's that one person down there at BYU Sports Nation? Definitely Jerem. Totally Jerem. Definitely, yeah. Because he's not there today. He's that one guy. Yeah, yeah, that's the only reason. If Spencer was gone, it would be Spencer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Spencer, yeah, no pants. Guy. Totally. I don't know why they need a holiday for no pants day. That yeah, seems like, you know. I wonder if you can't get in trouble, like, if you're walking down the street with no pants. It's okay, officer. It's no pants. No, no We're pants good. Day, it's no pants day. You can't cuff me. Here's, I know my rights. Here's my ID. <laughs> hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to recap something with you both before um, – oh, man, it's getting time. Because do you remember we told a story a while ago about how at Burger King people keep calling in a prank that's, and they keep saying, hey, there's a leak, a gas leak. The place is going to explode. You need to break out all the windows. That's messed up. Dude. I know. Well, it happened again. That is messed up. It is the third time it's happened, and they broke out all of the windows. Is it the same Burger King? No, different Burger King, different state. They've actually hit three states now, Oklahoma, Minnesota, and apparently California. Hmm. So um, they, broke out the window. they wanted me to just ask you guys to quit doing that. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, Spencer or Jerem, you guys, come on. Again, yeah. that's a Jerem thing. Come on, guys. Totally a Jerem thing. Dude lost his wallet on the way over to Penn State, and he's gone rogue. Yeah. Did, did he lose his wallet? Well, he wasn't wearing pants. That's so right, lost course. his yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, in all reality, he did lose his wallet, but it, I'll tell you why on the show coming up. That might be the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Is it because, like you losing your cell phone? Because I lost my wallet. I got my wallet and my cell phone stolen yeah. in Miami. Yeah, that wasn't bad. It didn't work out so well for me. Like, things have worked out very well for Jaron because he's, like, the VIP of all VIPs right now in Pennsylvania. Because they're about to – they're going to play the national championship now. He's the voice of the Cougars. All BYU fans are like, oh, you lost your wallet. I'll buy you uh, oh, number three let's, from let's Burger King. Let's go get a country club membership and play golf today. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so you went, you went above and beyond. I was thinking at number three at Burger King <laughs> with, with the windows. Are, are you guys going to mention the volleyball game at all on your show? We may or may not do that. And then there are two How other national it? championships that BYU teams are competing in tomorrow as well. What? So, oh, you didn't know. You know, take your pick. One of three national championship matches. It's all good. What, what, what are the other two? Rugby? Uh, r- rugby. Okay. And? Women's rugby. Really? Yes. <laughs> that is awesome. I know, right? A lot of people like you, for example, might yeah. not be aware no. of this. Didn't even know. Well, pretty cool stuff. That is because I, I just, on my walk, I just saw the rugby team a few days ago practicing. And I'm like, man, those rugby players look very feminine. Mm. And, and I didn't realize it was the women's team. I did not know we had a, a female team. That's awesome. It's an extramural sport for the first time cool. just since this fall, and they are competing against 10-time national champion Penn State tomorrow. Wow. Yep. It's going to work. It feels David good. and Goliath. So your show's going to work. It's still on. And are you, how are you going to try to get that voice that is inside of Brian's head to actually come out his mouth? Mm. 
I'm still trying to figure that out for like the last 20 years. That's all right. You got five more minutes. Mr. Logan, what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things (laughs) I have ever heard. (laughs) The kids love it. Well, guys, have a great show and a wonderful weekend. And and again, may we may the fourth be with you and a few days ago. And may you win three championships. Thank you, sir. Peace out. I'll never let go. And thank you again, Brian, for your um, just your I don't know your walkthrough of this beautiful moment from Titanic. Oh no, no worries, Matt. No worries at all. I, I you know what I uh, I was going to send you an invoice, but at that last That's fine. comment, I, I'm not. It's no, send it, send it, send no, it to no, Don no, no, Shaline. No, 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 it's on me, Matt. It's on me, Matt. It's on me. It's on me. Don't worry about it. Okay, that's free. Good luck, gentlemen. And uh, we will be ha- we'll we'll make a transcript of Brian Logan's. Um, <laughs> His words, just so you can figure out what he actually said. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, guys. Have a great show. Knock him dead. Knock him dead. That is cool. Again, play-by-play of the Titanic movie. It's rare that you get to do this. Do you want to hear about rare? We always talk heroes on the show, and I'm going to try, if I can, to get through some hero stories. Here's three. First and foremost, a man, listen to this, turns himself in on a charge of stealing a TV in 1989. Police say the man charged with stealing a television in, in Connecticut 27 years ago flew from his Florida home and voluntarily turned himself in last weekend after recently learning that there was a warrant out for his arrest. The guy, 60 years old, Randy uh, Iaconacon I- of uh, Florida, arrived at headquarters with a letter notifying him of the warrant. He was arrested and charged with third-degree larceny. He was released with a promise to appear in court next week. The charge stemmed from a 1989 theft of a television. Now, why am I saying he's a hero? Because he just wants to do what's right, for heaven's sakes. 1989. He's cleaning it up, taking care of it. The lieutenant, the police lieutenant, thought that was pretty cool that he turned himself in. Just manning up, being the man. Another hero I wanted to focus on is a mail carrier... Um, that saves an elderly woman. Listen to this. Betty Carroll stops by 1,000-plus mailboxes on her daily route, uh, but Monday was a different uh, was different than usual. She said, I noticed Miss Lockerbie's house that I had stuck a newspaper in her box, and she hadn't taken her newspapers out for the last few days. I knew that was strange for her because she gets them every day. She also noticed Dorothy Lockerbie's car windows had been rolled down for days, and the grass in her yard was overgrown. Carol just felt like something wasn't right, so she knocked on the door. The TV was really loud, and I thought that I heard moaning, but I wasn't sure, so I knocked again, and I was like, you know, it's the mailman. And then I heard what sounded like, get me help right away, and go get help. Anyway, she went and got help, and uh, the police came and did a welfare check, and she saved these the lives of these people. She's just friendly, sweet person, they say. This um, this wonderful mail, mail, mail carrier saves the lives of people by paying attention, folks. Betty Carroll, you are the hero of the day. And the final hero, my mom. Mother's Day, folks. Everybody take care of your moms. Take care of your moms. It's Mother's Day. We'll be back Monday. Give you more tools, more information to live longer and love stronger. Until then, take care of mom. <laughs>